Yeah. I mean. Oh, uh, for the next episode. Oh, I got one for you. Oh, do you? Okay. Welcome back, friends, to another exciting episode of Script V Manuscript, the podcast where we talk books, we talk movies, and we talk storytelling in really all their formats. Tonight we have a, uh, a fun and exciting, adventuresome episode here. I'm, I'm uh, co-host Terry. I'm here with my other co-host. Joe. And yes, it's been a while. And has. that's my fault. Well, I don't know. That's I a little. It's we a had li- a baby in the meantime. Yeah, that's a little your kind fault. Kind of a lot's happened. It's been busy. Yeah. Sorry about our six listeners. Yeah. But um, we're back. So school, school got out. It did. Which always comes with lots of stuff to do. And um, it's just a busy time in May. So, which is when this is being recorded towards the end of May 2022. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, we live in a post-the-Batman world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, we're not talking about the Batman we're not. tonight, though. We got a good one today. Yeah. I'm very excited for let's, today's uh, episode. Let's go through our spiels, our various things here. So, um, hang on. I got to pull up my notes here because I don't remember. Well, you should start off with what are you watching, what are you uh, reading? All right. I'll, I'm going to go first. Yeah, you just I've got told some, me you, you just saw something. Yeah, was, so. I've got some I got some real good stuff to share. So, uh, I had the opportunity to see an advanced screening of Top Gun Maverick okay. in IMAX, which I am now thoroughly convinced is the only way to watch movies with really awesome action sequences because mm-hmm. it was uh, it was my first IMAX experience. Yeah. It was awesome. Was it do you know if it was shot for IMAX? I don't know. I assume so. Okay. It was it was impressive. So I grew up in I grew up near Opry Mills Mall in Nashville sure. and um which opened when I was like in eighth grade. So I was like peak I wanna go watch movies. You know, you could scrape together ten bucks and go to a movie and there you go. Um they had an IMAX theater built in there. And they every once in a while would have an IMAX movie, which was shot on the special lenses with their cameras and stuff. But they would also just put whatever in there. Like if they had a major release, like I think I saw episode two there, Star Wars and maybe Batman Begins and just a few things like that. They weren't really meant for IMAX, but mm-hmm. the screen was noticeably larger than a standard uh, movie screen. Sure. And it's it, it was a lot of fun. It was awesome. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, go see Top Gun Maverick. Go I've heard that it. from more than one person. Yeah, they're not good. lying to you. Yeah. Uh, it has a, at least when we checked last night, it had a 97 on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. I think that that score is accurate. There's... There are two scenes that I think are a B minus. Okay. And everything else is uh, just great. Is A plus. Yeah. A, okay. a plus. Um, one of the things I appreciated most about it mm-hmm. is they didn't try to do too much with it. Okay. It wasn't. They uh, know what it is. They know what it is. Yeah. They know what Top Gun is. They know what it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I appreciate about the first film is that it's very grounded. Okay. Um, I think I can't remember. Um, but like at the end of the film, like Maverick is the only one. Maverick and, and Iceman are the only ones who have like even been in a dogfight in like thirty years or something. Yeah, that tri- that was the problem, right? They were right. like, well, nobody knows how to actually fight because so, because it's so if rare. You, if you haven't seen it in a while, it, in the old days, airplanes used to shoot at each other with guns, like right. dumb fire machine guns. Right. And as aircraft got more sophisticated, everything went to like aspect seeking missiles. Right. And so you just sort of flew to where you were supposed to be, and if you ran into a bad guy, you waited for the computer to tell you to push the button, and then you launched a missile. Right. And the bad guy shot flares and tried to dodge, and that's pretty much how a fight went. And so the original 
premise, which I don't know if Top Gun is a real thing. Uh, I, I've never like looked. Into I've that. actually never looked into it either. Um, but um, the premise is that various aviators are brought together, uh, like that are kind of already above average performers, to find out who the best dogfighter is right. through simulated combats. Sure. And um, so that's that's why all these like alpha male, highly over competitive um, dudes are brought in to to do this this thing and, and antics ensue. So sure. that's very simple premise the original one was. Right. But it was a great uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a good action movie. Yeah. I don't want to spoil really anything because it's so new. Um, in this one the stakes are higher. Okay. But they're not much higher. Okay. Um, which I appreciated. They've mm-hmm. it still felt very real. Still they felt very grounded. It takes a little bit in the original one. I think there's a real confrontation at the very end. Yeah. yeah. And so this one, um, yeah, it, it was really good. They then the, all of the characters have really satisfying arcs. Um, I, I think one of the most difficult things you'll you'll really appreciate this. Um, I think one of the most difficult things to do when you're making a sequel, especially one that is so far removed from its predecessor, is how do you take a character that has become a legend? Maverick is a legend, sure. right, in a lot of people's minds, and keep him as awesome as we want him to be, mm-hmm. but he also has to have grown, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is the problem with the sequel trilogy of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Han Solo reverts back to yeah. who he was in A New Hope. They don't know how to make him grow and develop, so they just do the same thing. Again. Right. Yeah. Say, so Maverick, is that does not happen with Maverick. Okay. Like, he has grown, mm-hmm. but he's still awesome right like they keep i don't know how they did it it's not an easy thing to do yeah but they keep all the things you love about maverick without Mm -hmm. regressing him okay and that's actually what i appreciated most about the film that's great um so i would definitely recommend it it's great great film um obviously just watched the movie for our podcast as well we'll get more into that later Mm -hmm. uh but the most recent thing that i read uh is jeff who uh, is the host of our sister podcast pop culture quorum deo Mm -hmm. put a copy of in the house of tom bombadil by C.R. Wiley in mm-hmm. my hand yesterday, and I read the whole book yesterday because okay. it was awesome. Yeah, uh, honestly, top five best things I've read in probably the last year. It okay. was that good. Um, C.R. Wiley is a brilliant mind. He's a excellent Tolkien scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very insightful. Um, he does. He has a, a really uh, unique and. Uh, Carmudgeon. I know that's not the right word. Um, uh, he's got. He's, that may be fair. He's got a. He's got a good. Yeah, maybe that is right. He, brought, I, see, I've read his. Um, I've read uh, Man of the House. Okay, and that's the only thing. Else, that's the only one of his books that I've read. Yeah, but, um, it's also very good. Yeah, this was his. His prose is is excellent. He's got a good sharp wit. Um, he's he has a way of saying more than more than he uh, intends without. Um, but it's all sort of subtle and veiled, which is, I think, very Tolkien-esque. It's a book that's written in a way that I think Tolkien would write a book like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very insightful. It goes well beyond just trying to answer the question, who is Tom Bombadil? Um, but I think he's got a lot of really good things to say. If you're a Tolkien fan, um, this book needs to be on your shelf. It's really yeah. great. So I, uh, that's what I've watched most recently. That's what I've read most recently. Um, I did pick up a book... It's actually a book I picked up at your store like a year ago or two years ago, maybe now, about late antiquity. So I'm okay. trying to study up on my uh, pre-medieval 
mm-hmm. fall of the Western Roman Empire, mm-hmm. uh, uh, part of part of history. So that's the my best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. So that's my nonfiction reading that I'm doing right now. But I that's what I'm getting into. I have a lot of interest in like the the sh- like Charlemagne, sure, like and pre Charlemagne guys. So that that era is interesting because you can really kind of follow the from when. Well, I know that there's probably a general scholarly consensus on when the Western Roman empire was like dead. Sure. But if you could imagine living through it, it would not have been quite so apparent. Right. You wouldn't have known like, Oh, today it was Rome and tomorrow it's not. Right. Um, following like what, how the world developed post Rome was, it was, is an interesting period. It is. Yeah. I think it's it's forgotten about, you know, we, we know about knights and shining armor and castles. We know about Rome. What about the interval? The interval, like things were just, just one inch from out of control all the time. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it is a really, and, and I think it's super insightful to our own modern, I, I think we're in a similar time period. Yeah. The West, I think the West generally is in a similar time period mm-hmm. of decline. Um, and so I think studying how Rome declined and how uh, certain things were preserved yeah. is, I think, a very timely lesson. And often, I mean, well, probably all the time, it was a decentralized preservation. Right, right? exactly. Like it was just people taking the initiative to hold on to what to was good. To hold on to what was good, yeah. <laughs> I think I think we need, that that lesson needs to be taught quickly. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's what I'm reading. What are you reading? Cool. Uh, well, right now, I just restarted um, the Chronicles of Perdane. Do you know the Chronicles of Perdane? The Chronicles of Perdane. Is this about the... Farmer boy with a pig. Yeah, he's a the assistant pig keeper. Yes. Right? So. Okay. I know of it. I've never yeah. read it. Why don't tell us about it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, um, this is a really good. It's kind of a forgotten about um, book. There, are, two of them won major awards. Um, Caldecott, I think. Maybe both of them are Caldecott. Um, the second one is the one that people have heard of. It's called The Black Cauldron. There was a Disney movie of it, which was perceived poorly. And so it wasn't, uh, there wasn't more. It was bad, made. right? Like I, as far as. If I remember right, I think the movie is is unfairly panned. It's not very good, okay. but it's, it's considered a horrible disaster. And I, just, I don't think it was that bad. Okay. Um, it was horrifying because the, the bad, sure. like the, the premise of that particular book is that they're the sort of the Sauron type Dark Lord character has a big black cauldron and if he puts a person in it they come out as like an unkillable undead monster and then they are like obedient to his commands and so they are trying to find a way to to find it get rid of it similar uh similar constraints to the ring from the lord of the rings yeah it's very difficult to destroy it um really good little character arcs it's short it's much simpler than lord of the rings it's more it's more in line with the narnia reading level okay so this is if you've got a kid who's into chapter books, they would probably find it interesting enough to, to get through one. And you're talking about 150 pages, maybe, for one of them. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm on the third one right now. Sweet. Uh, and so they're really good. Uh, they have a lot of uh, Tolkien-type things in them. The, the the author, Lloyd Alexander, is Welsh, and he pulls a lot of Welsh mythology in. Which Fantastic. Which is a... Which is an understudied. I was going to say that's a like not a lot of people know a lot about that, so it will feel at times familiar, but it will be familiar in a way that you're like, why do I know that? Um, And then it will feel at times very foreign because you just don't know that. But uh, he does a good job. They're fun. Yeah, they're they're not as good as Narnia. 
Um, they're not as they're not as in depth as Lord of the Rings, but it's a really fun world that he built, and that's what I'm. They've come highly recommended to me. Yeah, so. they're definitely worth your time. I think yeah. that uh, if you're a fantasy reader, you will like them. Um, character growth is good. That you follow the main character. There's really two main characters: as a male and a female. Um, he starts out as an assistant pig keeper, which is obviously meant to be like the lowest possible social rank. She is a princess and they have to kind of learn to get along. Initially they get along really well. And then they sort of, you know, over time they, they have a little bit of strife, but it's, it's clear that they just are like adolescents who probably are falling in love and they don't know how to deal with that. So there's a little bit of, it's a bit like it's a bit like Ron and Hermione. Like that would sure. be a, if if you're familiar with Harry Potter, they initially kind of are catty with each other, and it's clear if you're an adult that that author is writing them to be in love later. Right. Um, but uh, uh, and then eventually he, you know, not to give too much away, but he rises through basically through virtuous actions and impressing the right people by doing by continually doing good things. Yeah, that's and, fantastic. Um, showing his nobility because he has a desire to to rise above his station. And he does that by volunteering for dangerous duties, sticking to his guns, like uh, keep, keeping his word. Um, there's a lot of those kinds of like, um, they're more subtle virtues. Yeah. Um, he, he shows courage in the face of combat as well, like more dramatic things. But a lot of it's just like, I don't like this guy, but I swore to his father I'm going to protect him. And even though he's an idiot, I'm going to keep doing it. Like he <laughs> keeps screwing up, and I have to keep beating him out of it. But I promised that I would. So it's that kind of thing. Yeah, that's it's, awesome. not, it's not really beating you over the head, but, um, but yeah, yeah, they're pretty fun. So that's what I've been reading. Um, prior to that, I just finished reading some uh, historic naval fiction. Yeah. Um, which we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's a character that I had not encountered yet. Um, that I I kind of found when I was looking up more on that on that topic sweet um it was okay um and then uh, my nonfiction, i just somebody traded in at the store a copy of a book called starting strength okay which is a uh is a workout book basically for lack of a better way of putting it but it's a program it's a workout program where sure. you do dumb or barbell training it's just basic barbell training gotcha and i have i have barbells here in, in my house and um the the listening audience um, can't see, but I'm clearly a paragon of physical strength. Yeah. That was kind. That was kind. That was very kind. Um, is there a difference between a dumbbell and a barbell? Yeah. So a barbell. Uh, is, you corrected yourself, and yeah, which made me ask question. Yeah, two different question. things. Okay. So I don't know. I did a little research to see if I could figure out where the the term came from, okay. and nobody really knows for sure. But they think that it's at some point somebody literally made bells for like lifting, um, and you would have to you'd have to ring them. And so they were big. So you have to go and like practice ringing them. So it was was a bell, whatever. Um, So uh, a barbell is when you have plates on a bar, like a big bar that you would lift. So like a bench press or a a back squat or or something like that. That's a barbell. Dumbbells are the ones that you can hold in your hand. Ah, There's like a weight on each side. Gotcha. And then there's kettlebells, which are like a ball with a handle. Sure. And then there's actually a newfangled one called a mace bell, which is what it sounds like. It's like a heavy weight on one end and like a rod, and you can use it to do some stuff. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but uh, this program I've been really happy with. I've been doing it now since – it's been a little while, actually. I probably was doing it when we were recording our last podcast. But I I finished the book, which, which goes in great depth about how to do – there's basically five exercises that this program recommends. The okay. author is a, strength, is a former power lifter coach now. 
Um, and his big thing is this works for everybody. I mean, unless you're like an amputee or something like that and you just really can't physically do it. Sure. You, if you do their program, you will get stronger. And, uh, I was, I was thinking about trying to lose a little bit of weight. Like I don't, I'm not like hugely overweight, but I was just like, well, I'm getting older, you know, it's going to get harder and harder to, to, to drop that. Yeah. So as I was looking through these things, I was like, well, here's one that basically says, don't worry about losing weight, just lift and get super strong because, um, you will convert some of that body weight into muscle and it'll just make you generally, and I, they've made a convincing case for overall health. With yeah, it. sure. Um, and so, and the movements are safe if they're done correctly. And so there's apparently a, a big network of starting strength people. Uh, they have their own coaching qualification that they, that they are pretty stingy with. They don't give it out to people very easily. You can get online coaching. They have gyms. Their gyms are very expensive, but you get personal training every time you go in. Okay. Um, I have done lifting in the past. Like when I was in high school, I had a coach who was very, very skilled. And so he taught us how to do that. So I just needed kind of some brushing up. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, just as an example, when I started this program again, which I wasn't like terribly weak before, but my back squat, I started at 240, and now last, well, two days ago I did 315. Wow. So, and this has been about six or eight weeks, I guess. I'd have to go back and look at my workout log, but significant strength gains yeah. at that time yeah um, and it and you have to eat enough you have to sleep enough and then you have to kind of work hard sure that's pretty much it but it's fairly simple otherwise nice so i've really enjoyed it so if you're out there looking for something to do they have a lot of resources that are available on their website for free <clears throat> you can buy their book but if you if you poke around you can find youtube videos that they put out they're big believers in their system and their what's this called it's called starting strength starting that's the strength. name of it yeah yeah they have a they have a book called Starting Strength, and then there's another one that's kind of written more for coaches called Practical Programming for Strength Training. Okay, um, which I find the subject matter interesting. So yeah, I read a lot sure. about it. They talk about the chemistry of you know your hormones and how they make you stronger. And okay, when you start getting past the novice stage, which most people are in, what do you what do you do to keep making strength gains? What are realistic expectations? How do you train around injuries if you have them? Um, how to get rid of tendonitis if you develop that, like just things like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's an interesting read if you find that to be an interesting subject. Sure. Um, but that's been my nonfiction thing. Nice. Very yeah. nice. Um, and then I'm going to, I'm going to throw a curveball here for what I've been watching. I haven't watched many movies lately. I have watched some, but I don't want to talk about those until the end. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but uh, I sense a future podcast. I do. Plug. Okay. <laughs> I have been watching. I have rediscovered my my enjoyment of the sport of rugby, which okay. I, I used to love a lot, and I kind of quit watching it. But there's a lot of uh, full games, fairly recent ones, um, usually only a few days old, on YouTube. Which in America, it's very hard to find rugby live unless you. Sure. I'm sure you could subscribe to some weird service that has it. But right. um, even if you did. A lot of Southern Hemisphere rugby would be on at like two a.m. Sure, um, sure. And so, you know, if I can get a if I can get a game a week late, that's that's great in my opinion. So I've been watching some of that and just really have been enjoying watching the Heineken Cup, which is the European Championships. That's a great going cup. On now, and then there's a the rugby the Southern Hemisphere's got their Super League going on, and they're both kind of winding down right now. So um, at the time that we're recording this, I want to say the Heineken Cup Finals is maybe Saturday. Okay. Um, you played, didn't you? I did, yeah. I played in high school a little bit. I played in college for like one year. But I went to UT, Knoxville, and um, it was a club sport. 
so you had to pay dues and then you had to pay your own like travel expenses and stuff for away games and they were pretty serious so they would travel to like california and play berkeley and they would play air force in colorado and they'd go up to the northeast and it's like man i don't have any i don't have money or time for this sure so i didn't i didn't wasn't able to stick with it basically for that reason but uh and i don't know why that one has sort of stuck with me i'm not a huge sports watcher generally but for some reason i just have always enjoyed that particular game yeah so yeah it it looks violent which is cool yeah <laughs> i like it i like it a lot uh should it have been a book should it have been a movie movie you want to move on yeah let's do it okay do you have one handy i think i do okay i think i do so i'm a really big fan of the animated series Avatar: The Last Airbender, this is common knowledge from anyone. They should have made a movie of it. Uh, yeah, right. So um, <laughs> we're gonna, we're never, <laughs> never gonna talk about M Night Shyamalan. Well, I don't even know, like hypothetically, in another universe, if M Night Shyamalan had made a movie, we we wouldn't talk about it. No, because it would never not be ha- the director I would choose it, for that. It, would, it <laughs> definitely didn't happen in this universe. Yeah. Um, so no, I, actually, what what I would like to see is a novelization a, a novelization a series of um the development of the four nations so like a prequel series. like a prequel series yeah so are you sure that this doesn't exist already it, it, okay so that was going to be my disclaimer it okay. might i've not like looked hardcore because there, there's so this is not a real this is not a real anime right like this is an american this is a western anime okay. yeah it's an american made is there a manga version of it though i don't believe it's based on a manga like, but has, it's there, not an but has there subsequently been a book? Not that I'm aware of. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Okay. So I've, I've not really looked hardcore into it. There um, may be... I, I want to say I've seen some books. Yeah, I think most of the books that I've seen, though, are like Aang as an adult. Or like Aang, as, yeah. Aang like rebuilding the... Like, but, so, okay. They're not full manga either. They're mm, like... Yeah, no, actually, most, the ones I've seen are like graphic novels. Yes. That's what I've seen. It, I guess that's the... It's sort of like, okay, it's a Western anime, so it's going to be a Western manga, which is really not a manga yeah, at all. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not a running series that's coming from a manga publisher. Correct, correct. Yeah, I've not seen that. What I have seen are like graphic novels. I, I, there's one that I know of for sure that takes place pretty recent, pretty quickly after the series ends, the the first series ends. So um, Avatar The Last Airbender is a series that focuses on a character named Aang and his companions um, overthrowing an evil despot who's trying to take over the world. There's a sequel series. And they're martial artists. Yeah, yeah. That can, of, I mean, that can bend. Their martial arts allow them to bend natural elements. Yeah. They, they can use natural elements. Um, they're kind of like wizard martial arts. They're wizard, yeah. It's, yeah. it's an Eastern yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, there's a sequel series that they do that is like, um, gener- it's a generation after mm-hmm. Aang, and it and it sort of details like his legacy. Okay. And it's a pretty good attempt at a sequel series. Okay. <laughs> I have to I have to say, um, there are some aspects that are not as good, but are there are also some aspects that are better than the original series. Uh, but they've not done. I've not seen much um, detailing the past, except for in that sequel series, they do have a sort of a subplot. That reveals like like the first benders. Okay. So like it goes like way back where they, where they kind of discovered. The yeah, stability. like exactly. Um, and I, I won't get into all those details, but it it talks about that. Um, so that's not so that's already been kind of delved into a little bit. And frankly, I wasn't super thrilled with that anyway. Okay. But what I would like to see is sort of going is the in between, right? Okay. The in between from that period to it the seems four like nations the as a whole. Of those powers would. 
would result like there would be a connection between the fact that those powers exist and the fact that the nations are split into their elemental proclivities right right because if you have if you haven't seen this series which i actually haven't but i know enough about it to know that um there's a fire nation. You should watch this. There's series. a water nation. There's yeah. an air nation, and there's an earth nation. Is that right? There is. So, the, and they're they're all kind of. So there's like there's a fire. The fire nation, the fire nation, the earth kingdom. Okay. Um, and then there's like water tribes. Oh, so they're not and, all governed the same. Yeah, way. The, yeah. So it, okay. that's kind of they kind of explore different, yeah. different um, methods of governance, right? Yeah. So you have you have like indigenous tribals. You have nomads yeah. that are sort of like they're like Eastern aesthetics. Okay, um, they remind is that the air? they're the air nomads. Okay, um, and then you have like and this the, is reflective of the element. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Like so the like, earth is not is unmoving. Is it? Yeah, is immovable. Right. The fire, fire is all consuming. Mm-hmm. So it, they're like a, they're an imperial. Yeah, they're like an imperial power. Okay, um, and so it's it's really it really is fantastic. Yeah. Um, Sounds like somebody put some thought into it. Right, and and the sequel series as well. Um, it kind of takes that idea further. Really, the, the entire both shows in different ways are just meta conversations on the different ways that people are governed. Okay, um, and I, th- I think it's really interesting. But um, yeah, I would like to see those. How I would like to see to read to read um, about how those nations rise, um, how the how the elements shape the culture. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was connecting this to C.R. Wiley. I read that book uh, by C.R. Wiley. And C.R. Wiley talks about how, um, in that in his book, uh, In the House of Tom Bombadil, how language reflects culture. And there's this really interesting um, chicken and egg thing that happens with language, where does the culture you're... And the question is, does the culture you live in shape the words that you use? Mm-hmm. Or do the words that you use shape the culture that you live in? Um, and it's, I think there's a really, really interesting, it's a really, really interesting question. So like when I, uh, you, you gave me this idea, so I know you'll appreciate it. But, um, when I read Beowulf with my children, uh, with my students at, at my, at the school that I teach at, I show them the original, someone reciting Beowulf in the original language. Yeah. One of the conversations that we have, first of all, it's just fun, fun to watch because yeah. they're like, what is happening? Um, for people who don't know, um, the original language of Beowulf sounds like, Nothing you've ever. Well, it sounds like one thing maybe you've heard if you like the Muppets. Yeah, I always uh, compare it to Swedish Chef. <laughs> that's right, um, but it's old English. Old it's, English, it's Saxon English, uh, right? And uh, it is it is a different language. Totally entirely. different. Like it, it's it's trickled down, but there's been so many additives and so much development since then that it, it's just something totally different. Yeah. But what's in what it's an interesting conversation is when you hear it read, it sounds like what how Beowulf should talk. Like okay. when you read Beowulf. And you understand who he is as a person, and then you hear the 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 poem in its original language. It's hard not to think like this is how Beowulf would talk. His he would use these kinds of words, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to like French. Oh yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like French is too romantic. It's too. Mm-hmm. It's it sounds too much like a flowing river. Okay. Right. So like, like but like the song of Roland should be French. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? It's just this. There's this really interesting question for me about like how words the framing of words mm-hmm. reflects the people that frame them yeah and what is the relationship between people and the way that they frame frame their words similarly i think a, a similar question for the series for this book series would be how do the elements because you just you just talked about it right yeah. like the earth kingdom mm-hmm. is immovable right so like how do the elements shape the people who bend them as much as the people who bend them 
shape the thing. Yeah. Right. Um, and the and the original series does this, mm-hmm. um, but I would like to see books that do it in a way that well, is. Well, you could. I'm thinking of something like Asimov's Foundations yes. books, where it's like this vast undertaking that takes place over thousands of years, and it just kind of jumps in periodically to a specific character, and like how the previous character's actions are affecting them now. Yeah, you could do something like that, where you've got the the first Earthbender. Is that what they would call them? Sure. Yeah. Um, and then and then that guy lays down some philosophies or or something like that that are taken up by these people who identify that way with the earth and kind of like, we agree with this guy. Um, and, and they evolve and they kind of develop that and right. different aspects of the earth affect different ways that they do things. Like, sure. like maybe when they get really angry, they're impossible to contain in the same way a volcano erupts. Like they, they do have a breaking point. Um, they otherwise are very sturdy though and sure, dependable sure. and um they believe in in uh multiple generations like they they have a long view i mean you, it makes me think of tolkien's view of dwarves right like sure. they're, they're, they're not immortal but they're long-lived and they they build massive structures knowing that you know their grandsires and grandsons are all going to be have been here and will be here and correct there's a there's a, a permanence a permanence them. yeah that's a good one that's an example sure um, the others would have other you know other similarities yeah in their own element but yeah i would like to that. see yeah i would just like to see i think i think there's a lot of um potential there for some good storytelling and and really focusing on that question of like do the does the culture shape the thing or does the thing shape the culture? I think is is just kind of an interesting chicken well, you know, egg I, dichotomy. We both like language. Yeah, you're a Latin instructor. I am neck deep in Hungarian, which is really hard. Yeah, yeah, you're a better <laughs> man than me. Um, I'm doing Latin on the side, and it's like a breath of fresh air sure, <laughs> compared sure. because. Um, I'm still pretty early in the Latin part, and so it's mostly review from when I had Latin as a as a student in like eighth and ninth grade. It's like you know, I'm on like plurals, sure. so it's still like first <laughs> conjugation ver, like a very simple yeah. yeah. Um, and how do you? Well, so for, let me give you an example, okay? Latin very structured, yeah. Uh, relatively simple rules, yeah. With some exceptions, kind of out in the ether that yeah. every once in a while you have to kind of just know. Like for instance, you don't say in Romai, you just say Romai, right? Because the Latin speaking people were from Rome and they would have privileged that term, right? Um, and there may be other grammatical reasons too, but that's just one of the things that you you get from that. Well, so like for instance, if you have two women, you have duai feminai, right? Well, in Hungarian, you would say two woman. If you have a if you have a, a a number, then the noun becomes singular. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, if I was to say women, it would be nuk, which is the plural form of nu. You have the k to the end. But if it's, let's say, uh, three women, right? Or uh, let's see. I mean, I'm trying to think of a number I know off the top of my head. Uh, you have four women. You have nij nu, and okay. that's that's four w- women. Four that's women. How it would literally that's be how it would be literally be translated. But if you translated it into English correctly, it would be four women. Four women. So sure. you have to watch that. And and anytime there's a like, if you say many buses, it would be in Hungarian. It would be sok bus instead of busok, which is the plural. Yeah. So 
their their rules are just out there and they've got like 38 cases or something like that whereas compared to like latin which has five don't tell my students that three and um and of course english is a hard for its own like it's got so many exceptions it's impossible to categorize but like man it's uh it's interesting that is interesting Um, but the reason why i bring that up is because you know the hungarian people i got first interested in this because they've been in the news about like you know they have their prime minister is very controversial and but I've heard that their language is really super hard. And so I do Duolingo and it's, it's hard enough and it's still new enough in Duolingo that they are in beta mode. So I can get the features of a paid account without paying because it's in, it's, it's beta, yeah. which is a kind of a nice thing. But I can tell you right now, man, if I had to depend on like the little hearts, if you've done Duolingo, you know, on your mobile device <laughs> that you have like five hearts. And if you lose, if you miss a question, you lose a heart. And if I was, if I was dependent on that, I would have given up like long time ago. <laughs> Because there has been some lessons where I've just been like, I'm just gonna have to keep guessing until I get this right. I'm, I'm, I've gotten to where I'm okay at it now. Couldn't carry on a conversation. Sure. And I don't think when I finish the program, I still don't think I'm gonna be ready to do that. <laughs> but um, I, I'm, I'm finding it interesting. Yeah. And I wish I could remember who said it, but somebody important once said uh, to have, um, to have a second language is to have a second soul. Yeah. And studying language just really opens your eyes to the people who spoke that language, right. like right. the like the Romans with Latin, simple, direct, uh, you know, no definite article. Like right. they don't say the boy; they just say boy. Right. And then when you translate it into English, you have to kind of think: okay, are they talking about a boy or the boy? Right. Well, Hungarian has a definite and an indefinite. Um, and so that de- that's dependent. De- the definite changes if it's if the next word starts with a vowel or not, which is not terribly dissimilar from English, right? Sure. We have a, a and an, sure. which is our indefinite, um, which is confusing because in Hungarian, a and az, az, are the definite. So if I want to say the boy, I would say a few. Uh, okay. And, and if for once in a while, if you don't have your thinking cap on, you'll get that wrong because in English, that means a boy right. instead of the boy. So. Um, yeah, it's, but it's been really interesting to, to kind yeah. of learn about Hungarians and they're just an island unto themselves. You sure. know, nobody speaks that language over there. No, nobody around them does. The next closest is Finland, uh, who's, which speaks Suomi, which has some similar grammar, but totally different vocabulary. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. And, in, and in looking at how a language reflects the people who speak it, I think is a really interesting question. Yeah. So. Well, the vocabulary sounds like the people. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, like, well, here's a silly example, right? Um, Klingon, right? When the the Star Trek people came up with the Klingon language, it's extremely aggressive sounding. It's got a lot of, like, hard stops, a lot of... uh, you know, emphatics, a lot of yeah. aspirants, uh, like just big noise and, <laughs> and like everything they say sounds like they're angry. Right. And that's supposed to represent these, this fictional race that these guys created. Sure. And sure. I read somewhere one time that somebody said like 60% of their vocabulary is verbs. And I was like, well, that's great. You know, right. whoever wrote that, or whoever came up with that detail is is aware of what Roddenberry had in mind when right. he designed these guys because they're people of action. They're people like of action. They're they're very you know. Yeah. Could sure. Do the same thing with Tolkien and sure. the Sindarin languages sure. and stuff and absolutely like how they're they sound. 
flowy yeah and the script is is very artistic looking and looks yeah. like it's uh just waves on the shore absolutely uh, you know absolutely so, as opposed as opposed to the uh dwarvish which uh sam comments in the fellowship that you know speaking dwarvish is like having a mouthful of rocks he says or yeah something like that yeah. which is you know they're literally tunnelers right like they yeah, that's they what might they have do. right so <laughs> yeah exactly it's just yeah it's a it's an interesting question it's interesting i'm gonna have to tell my students that they need to stop whining about the clensions or we'll start learning hungarian yeah you <laughs> should you should threaten them with that hungarian lesson tonight <laughs> Like take two weeks off would be like that. Uh, remember that kid's book, uh, Mrs. Nelson is missing. Oh yeah, where the where she dresses up as like Mrs. File the Swamp and right. comes in. Except instead of doing that, you just take two weeks off and I'll come in and teach Hungarian and they'll all fail and they'll be like Latin is so easy. Latin is so great and we love you, Mr. Davis. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, storytelling one hundred and one. You got something? Oh man, do I? I don't. Um, I'm gonna have to think of something. Have we done Have we done tonal dissonance yet? We have we I don't know if we've done it in in storytelling one hundred and one, but it t- t- tone has come up some. Okay, let's do, let's just do that. Yeah, let's and do. We'll it. rehash it if we've done <laughs> we've done it before. Um, <laughs> if if we have done it before, there may be a hard cut to like some recording of just me talking just, about something unrelated. <laughs> that's fantastic. Shortly, and then I'll just plug it in there. Um, all right. So when you when you've got a story, you've got to set a tone, and if your uh, if your story is good. Your tone will be consistent and it will not create in a viewer or a reader or a listener um, confusion, emotional confusion usually. Um, So what you're trying to do is, let's take movies. Let's just talk movies first. Yeah. Because movies have a lot more that they can kind of use to play with you. Sure. Um, If your music is like rock and roll music and it's it's like like they're playing ACDC. But children are being murdered on the screen. You're you're gonna think, what am I supposed to be feeling right now? Sure. Because this sounds like action fun music, like this should be like a car chase in Smokey and the Bandit. Right. But it's a horrible thing on the screen. Sure. Um, and so you're you're not. It's just gonna cause confusion. Your brain's gonna kind of short circuit. That's right. Um, you see this. Th- this is really common in B movies actually, because they have usually they have limited music. They don't always have. Uh, they, they certainly don't have the money for an original score mm-hmm. and they usually don't have money to license like known songs. Um, but they might have the money to license a song and they may want to play it uh, 50 times because they've got it. And so it, it's not always appropriate to use and they may <laughs> throw it in there because they've got it and they paid for it and they want their money's worth. Um, can you think of any any major releases or bo- books or movies that have a tonal problem? Yes. So and why? So this this actually is on my on my mind because very recently I was in a debate with uh, a guy, um, a mutual friend of ours, that uh, was trying to defend Thor Ragnarok as being the best Thor movie. Okay. And I think that Thor Ragnarok is the worst Thor movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because of tonal dissonance. Wow, that's a harsh. That's, it is, that's worse yeah. than Captain Marvel? Yeah, well, sorry. I, uh, <laughs> in regards to the Thor's movies. Okay, so it's like, his worst movie. Yeah, it's his okay. worst movie. Yeah, uh, nothing's worse than Captain Marvel. Um, although I would say Thor Ragnarok is in the bottom four, which is like a really hot take. Most people would say Thor Ragnarok is mid. Um, well, and, a lot of people th- thought that his first two movies were dull. Right. Because uh, he, as a character, he was not a dull character, but he was not funny. Right. And uh, he did not have that 
that signature Marvel. Yeah. Humor. So, so that's so that's it, right? So the first, so this this is the whole crux of my argument is that in the first films and all the way up through the first Avengers film, um, Thor is a very Thor takes himself very seriously. Yeah. Right. That he is a prince of Asgard. Mm-hmm. He is a monarch. Right. And um, he has uh, in in his first movie, his character arc is. Um, realizing the weight of responsibility that yeah. he's he's um, he's a monarch that uh, doesn't understand the weight of rule and the nobility that is needed to be a king, and by the end of the first movie, he's not a king yet. Yeah, but he's he realizes that he's not a king by yes. the end of the movie. Right, he achieves, he achieves worthiness. Right. Through, well, he learns a big important one, which is that if you want to rule, you have to be willing to sacrifice, sacrifice. for your people or sure. for others. In for general. others in general. So he he you know that's the big thing at the end of the first movie when he yeah he just walks out and gets wiped gets out just by that um, manhandled by that monster robot yeah. thing. Anyway, um, so and so like that begins his journey, right? Mm-hmm. So the first movie sets the tone. Yeah, he's a monarch, right? Um, who needs to learn what it means to be king. Let me just take a quick side note here. Do you know who directed the first movie? I don't remember. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. I'm sorry. So Kenneth Branagh, you don't know that name? It rings a bell, but like I don't know why I should Uh, know. Have you seen Harry Potter 2? Yes. He is Professor Gilderoy Lockhart. Oh, okay. He's a face you would know. Yeah, Um, yeah, sure. He's been in a lot of things. Now, Kenneth Branagh was chosen for that role, at least partially, because he is a Shakespeare specialist. Okay. And when they brought him in to direct that, they knew that about him. And so... This is not a comedy guy, right? Like he, he, I'm sure he has, you know, some ability to do funny things, but like this is a dramatic director, right? And they wanted that to be the tone for Thor, so they brought him in for the first Thor movie. I right. don't know who directed the second one; I can't remember. But anyway, keep that in mind. Yeah, go ahead with where you were going. So, um, so that's Thor, right? That's his character arc, and every subsequent film in Phase One of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Consistently, Thor is a serious character. He's yeah. a character that is um, that takes himself seriously, that takes his situations that he finds himself in seriously. He's the straight man um, all yeah. the time, yeah. which is it can be a joke in itself. Sure. Like everybody else is kind of people like they're right they grew up on earth they're right. regular people and then he's fish out of water it's fun it's fun in the first avengers film when tony stark says things like you know does mother knoweth that you weareth her drapes yes right so which like is he's, a shakespeare reference right which right? is him making fun of like <laughs> shakespeare in the park yeah right um kind of stuff and so but and like goes over thor's head because he's yeah he doesn't he, have that he doesn't have it right yeah. and and also like he's living he's yeah. living it right he's a living embodiment of of a different time for us Mm -hmm. and uh the comic books um do this right Um, so i think it's really consistent with who thor is supposed to be Mm -hmm. from that from a comic book standpoint uh but the problem is people didn't like it because it's really hard to have this (laughs) i mean it, it would be like having aragorn as one of your companions next to Captain America and, and, and Iron Man, right? Yeah. It's he's he's he is a he's out of place, out of place, yeah. right? And so, and I I am sympathetic uh-huh. to the directors and the storyboard, uh, the the screenplay authors and the storyboard people and everyone over at Marvel because that's trying hard. to make all the pieces right. fit that's, into the big universe. That is a hard thing, yeah, right. But you got to do it. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it wasn't going well, right? Nobody liked Serious Thor. Right, he was not being received well, and I I have other comments about why he wasn't being received well. But regardless, in Thor Ragnarok, um, it really actually started in Ultron, but in Thor Ragnarok, 
um, they they just did a complete 180 mm-hmm. and decided uh, because Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth, the actor, is very good at is very good at comedy. Yeah. He's a funny guy, mm-hmm. and I have no. When people say like you don't like you don't think he's funny, I'm, I think he's hilarious. Yeah, I think it's I think he's a very funny actor. He's got great comedic timing. He's very he's got great charisma. Um, but that's not who the character is. Yeah. And a character can go through massive tonal shifts. I'm, I would not, I don't think like once you set a character on a path, they've got to stay the same, Sure. but there's just not a whole lot there to justify. In my opinion, mm-hmm. there's just not a whole lot there to justify Thor going from, because the, I think if I'm right, age of Ultron is the last mm-hmm. time you see Thor before Ragnarok. And in Age of Ultron, he's serious. He's 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 the Thor we know. Yeah. Right. So what happens between Age of Ultron and the opening montage of Thor Ragnarok that yeah, he's suddenly a, scene. suddenly? But in the opening scene, I mean, he's a comedic. Jokes. He's he. I mean, and it's that way the whole movie. Yeah. Right. And now at the end of the movie, he loses everything. Yeah. Right. So there's like a so like. At the end of the movie, maybe he just breaks and becomes Mister Comedy. I don't know, maybe, mm-hmm. but at least you know, at least there's something there. But nothing happens between Ultron and Ragnarok to make him suddenly Mister Guardians of the Galaxy. So the only thing I can think, and this is this is a stretch, is that because of his because of his growth in confidence and in power, which is a little silly because he's pretty much Superman with right. hammer, right? That he now is no longer like the villains he's dealing with are, are not in his league. And so he has, he has the luxury of being able to crack jokes with them. Um, that's, that's the implication I got from the first part of that movie, but I'm with you. Like we would say, okay, so we mentioned Captain Marvel. One of the big problems with Captain Marvel is that her powers appear to be unearned, right? right. She doesn't have to go through a difficult circumstance to learn how to use them to be able to apply them she doesn't hurt herself she doesn't have many setbacks sure. of, of that are worth mentioning and so when she ends up at the end of the movie suddenly being superman everyone's like i don't care right uh, because this is just you just found and they're about to release another movie or a show <laughs> where a girl pretty much finds magic gloves what is it that she gets i don't know they've changed it from the it's comics miss marvel yeah miss marvel um, and she finds it's a yeah, it's a wristband, I think. Yeah, or something. And so she gets this thing, and now I'm, I haven't seen that, and I don't plan to. But maybe they maybe they establish that she earns this power. But it looks to me like she just finds it in a trunk, and right. then she's a superhero. And that's boring. Nobody right. cares about that. You want to see a person grow. Sure. You want to see a person earn their powers. Well, and look at Captain America who earned his power right. before he was Captain America. He still stood his ground and fought. Right. He lost. Every time, because he was a 90-pound weakling. Right. And then when he gets power, they even go so far as to say that. Where, like, Dr. Uh, What's-His-Name was like, if you give it to a strong guy, he doesn't appreciate it. That's basically what he says. If you give it to somebody who is weak, they understand the value of this thing. Right. And so we aren't going to give it to some guy who's already roided up dude. We're going to give it to somebody who knows what being weak is like. So that they won't, because they won't forget and they won't abuse this. Right. And so they were heroes first. And they got powers after, and the only and they got there. They they proved that. So okay, so let's now let's reverse this to Thor, where we're saying okay, Thor wants to transition from being super serious guy to comedy guy. There's a way you can do that narratively. Sure, 
but you'll have to basically establish that his being serious is a problem that he needs to overcome. Right. And they didn't. Right. If they did, it would have been a, in a interval that we didn't see between movies. Sure. And so he just is suddenly funny. Yeah, right. And surrounded by funny stuff. Now, the setting is some of that. Like, he's in kind of a weird, zany planet in Thor 3. But you're right. Like, we, we've we been introduced to a certain kind of Thor. He fits into the team a certain way. And now he's different. He's something sure. different. Yeah, and with with no explanation, and and again, I'm I'm sympathetic, but you just good storytelling. You don't just pull, you don't just pull these bait and switches without without it being intentional. And like I think there can be times where you shock the audience by doing uh, in tonal tonal dissonance um, intentionally, right? There there sure. can you you can use tonal dissonance as a tool, mm-hmm. but it's very clear to me that that's not what they're doing in Thor Ragnarok. No, I don't think so. that they just People didn't like serious Thor, so let's just make him funny because we got an actor who can do it. Yeah. Um, with with absolutely no attempt by the film directors to say here's why. Yeah. You know, we're just we're just gonna do it because we know that this is what people want. We got, and, we got a comedy director to come in. Right. Taika Waititi comes in. The guy Jeff Goldblum. You know, he's kind of an odd eccentric dude. You know, you've got they they'd already established a sort of a. What's the word I'm looking for? Like a comp- a competitive nature between Bruce and yeah. Thor. So like they just kind of really play on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there you go. You got the recipe for a comedy. And 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 Thor Ragnarok is funny. It's it's funny. It's, it's funny essentially movie. a buddy comedy. Yeah. Between uh, the Incredible Hulk and Thor. And Thor, you know, with some absurd. fun Loki. That's an with, absurd premise. With, so. with some fun Loki stuff thrown in. And so you know, you've got some really good actors. You've got a, a good director in Taika Waititi and. Um, so the film as a standalone film is fine, is is good, I would say, but it's you know within the context of the narrative, it's just um, it's really really frustrating and very yeah. jarring. Jarring is the perfect word, and that's what tonal dissonance does. Again, intentionally, it can be used to great effect, yep. but if it's not intentional, it just sucks your audience right out of the story. So, um, there's a scene that I'm thinking of where tonal dissonance is used intentionally. And it's uh, Apocalypse Now. Okay. Um, when they attack the VC, the Viet Cong village with the air, they do an air raid and they fly in and they're playing the flight of the Valkyries over loudspeakers in the in the uh, helicopters. And they're shooting rockets and killing people, civilians, uh, ostensibly, because it's like a village full of people. Sure. And Flight of the Valkyries is not the kind of thing you should play when military people are killing civilians. Right. But they did that because, and this is, you probably get a lot of this kind of thing in Vietnam type movies, Vietnam era movies, because there was a lot of that sentiment of like, we're told, we're told what is good and what is not good. But we question that. Like there's sort of a, are we the good guys or not? Um, And so, one of the ways that you can help the audience perceive that confusion is by tricking their brain into not knowing what they should think. Right. Because if you're sitting here going, "Oh, the ride of the Valkyries and helicopters, yay, actions. Oh, they're killing civilians. Yeah, sure. Uh, do I need to be excited right now or not? And that's that's what that's they want you to think that. Right. right? This is right. a trick that their director has played on you. And it makes the movie better because part of what he's trying to do 
is get that message through. Yeah, that's good. Have you seen Watchmen, the yeah. the film? Um, I think the opening montage of Watchmen is kind of like that too. It it plays the song "The Times They Are Changing," yeah. which is a that's sort of a '60s anthem. Yeah, like a hippie song. Hippie song, mm-hmm. and but like the montage just shows like the degradation of of heroism yeah. in that universe, and so it starts off as like, you know, World War Two's over, yay, and then like it, things just get bad. They go they go you know bad to worse, and so you you have a similar thing where it's like the times they are changing. But I don't think they're changing well. Yeah, right. Like, which the song is like, we're winning, right? Like, but then the visuals that you're seeing, right, are contradictory. Contradictory to that, and so that's a that's they can they can trick you. They can do that, and it's clearly intentional, and that's good. It's mm-hmm. just Thor Ragnarok is not that. Yeah. So, and that you you may see that. Um, I mean, keep an eye out on for that when you're watching movies. You may you may get to a sequence where you're thinking like, what what is what what am I supposed to think about this mm-hmm. um what's the point of this scene um and that you know if i if i had prepped this better i would have probably come up with a couple of other examples but there no, are, I think that's that good. happens so somewhat and, and sometimes it's done on purpose if you're going to go see a major release with like a competent filmmaker in it often you will have that done on purpose sure and it's done for you know whatever reason that they're doing it yeah absolutely it can be done in, incorrectly though as well right and you're just sitting here going well, that was a mess up. You know, they shouldn't have done that. Yeah, um, thriller. I think thrillers do this too. Yeah, and um, it's like and like uh, like the Joker, the scene where he's like skipping down the stairs. Yeah. I can't remember what song's playing, but I think it's like super happy. Yeah, but like he just like killed people and he's yeah. like embracing madness and so mm-hmm. like they're yeah tonal dissonance can be an effective tool, but if it's not if you're not using it as an effective tool, it is a jarring yeah. Um, experience for the audience yeah, there, consistency is a, is a helpful thing as well your overall story should have a tone that it's that's consistent yes and, um, and that's well said if it changes there should be a compelling reason for that sure um, i mean you can look at lord of the rings and see well the tone of lord of the rings is, is fairly downbeat for most of the story because one of the major themes of that book is how do you how do you um deal with hopelessness and despair yep um and then when it when it becomes clear that, that they have achieved victory, it's instantly better. Yeah. But that is achieved through a thousand pages of toil. You yeah, know? right. And so by the time that happens, you're ready as a reader for that release and you're you're prepared to accept that okay, it's the ring is gone. There right. will be peace. The king has returned. Right. Um, so you know so keep that in mind if you're writing yeah, a story if you have a if you have a chapter that's very uh, happy and then you have a chapter that's very sad Think about, you know, have a reason for it. Otherwise, sure. people are going to be up and down on the roller coaster. And that that could be that could be done on purpose. That's fine, too. But just know that, that that tool is there. You can work that lever if you want to. Yeah, that's good. What do you think? Move into Master? Uh, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Do you want to introduce this one? This was, this was your baby. Uh, okay. So let's see. Let me pull up my notes here. Well, I don't have any notes. Set this aside. Tonight we're going to be reviewing a couple of things. Really, this is going to be sort of a grab bag of it is. boats, it is. boat books, and <laughs> the movie that we decided to review is 2003's Master and Commander, um, starring Russell Crowe. This is during the Russell Crowe hot streak. Gosh, he had he was in some bangers, dude. <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> is this is not far. I want to say Gladiator was 99 or 2000, that or something right. like that. Um, 
He did The Beautiful Mind. Yep. Uh, that was another one. I think he got an Academy Award for that one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There were several of them. He did Cinderella Man. It was a boxing movie. Yeah. Uh, so there was he was on a hot streak for a while. Very Probably made a lot of money. Very sought after. And yes. He, he brought a lot to his roles. I don't, wanna, I don't think he was I don't I don't consider him an overrated actor. I don't think that so. Way. Yeah, I don't um, think he's so. probably not the best one ever, but he was very competent and he was whoever his agent was or himself was very wise about the roles that he chose. Agreed. And did a good job. So Agreed. Um so tonight we're talking about Master and Commander. We're also going to talk about a couple of the books by uh, Patrick O'Brien who wrote the uh Master and Commander book series. Yes. So O'Brien started writing these back in the seventies, I think. And the first book, so this is a little confusing. Um, so if you're, if you're interested in reading these, the movie is called master and commander. The, the character in the movie is not a master and commander. He is a captain, right? Um, master and commander is a naval rank. Um, when you were a Lieutenant, gosh, I don't know how much, how much detail we want to get into <laughs> here. I don't want to bore everyone with, with Navy trivia, which I could easily do, but <laughs> In the in the British Navy of this era, this is around eighteen hundred. Yeah. Um, they had different kinds of ranks on the ship. There was regular sailors before the mast, which is the guys who just did you know whatever needed doing. Um, then you had warrant officers, which were dudes who were in charge of stuff. So like the chief gunner, the chief sailmaker, the chief cooper who makes the barrels, etc. And then you had, uh, sorry, those are petty officers. Then you had warrant officers who were basically specialists like. A sailing master, um, I think a bosun or Bosons. the boat swain. Um, the bosun is considered one, and you have midshipmen, which midshipmen are like officers in training. the The United States Naval Academy mascot is still the midshipman. So if you watch a Navy versus Army football game, it's the Black Knights versus the midshipmen, um, right. unless they've changed it. I'm pretty sure that's still what they go by. Um, they they might even be called that when they're in the Naval Academy. Like if you're enrolled there, you may be considered a midshipman. Um, but anyway, it's officer in training. Eventually you take the lieutenant's test and then you get commissioned. So you're a commissioned officer. If you do well, you'll get promoted and the next rank up is master and commander. And then you'll get promoted beyond that to post captain. And then if you don't die, you will eventually become an admiral. Um, when all the other admirals die or retire. So that's sort of a crash course in this. Now the movie is called Master and Commander because the first book in the series was called Master and Commander. Right. And it is the story of Jack Aubrey, who's the main character, getting promoted from lieutenant to the rank of Master and Commander and being given a ship. Um, and then uh, meeting his good friend, Dr. Um, Maturin, Stephen Maturin, who's an Irish uh, doctor and is also a spy. Yes. Um, so he's an interesting dude. He's a opium addict. <laughs> yes. Um, at first, um, he, he kind of works his way out of that, <laughs> but O'Brien was uh, a big lover of uh, historic naval fiction. And this besides Hornblower, well, this probably has surpassed Hornblower in fame, at least I would say because partly because of the movie. Um, but Hornblower and the master and commander series are the two most well-known sure. of this subgenre. Sure. I would say. Um, and so we read, uh, Joe read the actual book, The Far Side of the World, correct, which is the subtitle of the movie. Um, and I read the first four books in the series, yeah, um, which have nothing to do with the plot of the movie. So I'm starting to think none of them have anything to do with the plot of the movie. <laughs> um, I will say that there were several things that were clearly 
pull from Far Side of the World. Yeah, um, I, I can say the same thing about the <clears throat> the other books in the series. There's a lot of scenes in the movie that are in the other that are in the books that I read. Okay, cool. There are 20 books in the series total, and there is one unfinished work that he he died before he was able to complete. So gotcha. you can actually buy 21 books, um, but one of them's not done. Kind of similar to Hornblower. There's an unfinished Hornblower story as well. Um, so that's what we decided to do. So yes. how, where do we want to begin? Um, why don't we do, uh, I'll do a quick rundown of the film first. Okay. And then we'll, we're going to have to struggle through books cause we read five together. Yeah, yeah. You read four, I read one. Um, I meant to read far side of the world as well. And I just, <laughs> I didn't get to it. Uh, we'll forgive the, we'll have to forgive you for not reading five books for this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> All right. So the movie starts off with a really exciting scene. Uh, where Jack Aubrey is engaged uh, in a battle with his ship, the Surprise, yes. against a uh, French frigate, man of warship, yeah. uh, called the Akron. Yeah. Um, and which is a Greek river. It's it's something to do with the underworld. Okay, Styx is the only one I know. I but think, I, I is think he, there's a there's something. It's something to do with Hades. Uh, which so uh, in other he, words, is Akron the, the river? Is he the guy on the river? That's cur- That's uh, no. That's um, that's Carib. No. Oh man, Charybdis is in is in the Odyssey. That's, that's right. That's, that's one right. of the two monsters uh, that that go between uh, Carundin. I don't know. Ca- no, Charon. Ca- it's Charon. Charon. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, how funny is that? That the, <laughs> the boatman that takes you to Hades is named Charon. Not spelled the same. Not spelled um, the same, but yes, that's the like Grim Reaper dude. You have to right. pay him the two right. coins. Um. I, the Acheron is something to do with Hades. Yeah. I, I should look it up. But um, I was just reading Hercules adventure stories with my kids the other night, and he had to go to the underworld and. He fought some monster, sure. maybe the Cerberus at, at Acheron. So, sure. so uh, we're introduced to this fight, and we learn that uh, Jack Aubrey and his ship have been tasked with um, claiming the Akron. Uh, they either have to sink it or claim it as a prize. And the rest of the movie is, uh, and they're far. They're on the far side of the world. Right. Literally, they are. They're on off the coast of South America. Yes. This is during the era when. England and is basically the only country. Well, Russia was still neutral, I think, at that point, but they were the only country that was actively fighting against Napoleon. There was Spanish resistance, but it was guerrilla resistance. So the only real country that was that was fighting against Napoleon was the British, and the British Navy was all that stood between him and victory because he could not get his soldiers from the continent over to England because right. the British Navy would have just sunk them all into the channel. Right. One of the things about the movie that is a little bit misleading is they make it kind of look like the French have a superior like, like naval the British are underdogs in this, but the British Navy spanked the French almost every time they crossed cannons. With right. Them. It was like nine out of 10 was British victories. They just beat the tar out of them. Part of that was because the British actually had experience because the French basically just had to sit in port and like try to sneak out whenever there was fog. Right. And, uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, that would be more, more boring though if the movie came up. With, right, like, the if British it, always win. Yeah, like, here's and also story. like if you're starting off with a fight, it's like oh, and the movie's over now. The, now the other thing <laughs> is that they do to build this is that the Acheron is is, is a, a superior it vessel. It is a larger. I don't yeah. remember how many guns they say it has. It's got like forty more guns and twice as many crew, something like that. Yeah. So he had. I think he said at one point they have more than twice our guns, more than twice our number. Yeah. And the and the surprise was a twenty eight gun frigate, which is right. which is kind of on the smaller side for a frigate um and 
so they, you know, you've probably got a ship that's 60, which is a very large frigate. If, much more than that, and it would have been a full-fledged battleship. Right. So, um, and it's it's also superior, like it's a newer design. It's got like, yeah, newer design, thicker hull. Um, so the the British have been tasked with bringing in this, this French ship uh, that's called the Akron. And the rest of the movie is um, a sort of... Uh, cat and mouse game where they're trying to figure out how they can best this ship that is technologically superior. It's larger, um, it's but it's superior technological design uh, makes it also still be, uh, it's very fast, it's maneuverable, yeah. so it's not really sacrificing that mm-hmm. tactically for its uh, size. And so um, it, it is sort of impossible odds. And this reveals uh, sort of the main... Uh, st- struggle for Jack, or the or the one of the main through threads of the movie, which is that um, Jack has a, uh, a a desire to win at all costs in yes. the, in the movie, um, and so he's got a he's got a and it's inferior it's ship. established that if this is a stand up fist fight, they will lose. Yes, that's that's right. what they want you to kind of get from. Yeah, them. you don't need to know a lot about naval jargon to know that that if they get into a real just broadside to broadside fight with this ship, they will lose. Yeah, and and it's established in the first fight, which is in yeah. the first ten minutes of the film. Like talk about the, the stakes, right? You know, they immediately immediately barely get away. Right, they they, they, they escape, escape because of fog. Yeah. They get a sort of a lucky break. The the officers are like we just you know we they're cut, they're home. they're tu- they're justifying it like it was a good fight we did our best and they're like we gotta go home and he's like we're not going home we're, yeah. we're gonna fix the ship out here in yeah. the ocean and we're gonna carry out our orders mm-hmm. and so that that sets the the uh, tone for the film which is Jack they they're going to win based on Jack's just will to to win right yeah. like that he, he he is just this force of nature um and uh that is juxtaposed with jack or uh with steven who is the ship's doctor yeah um and also a good friend of jack aubrey um but they uh butt heads because steven uh is believes that jack has fallen victim to uh his pride yeah and, he's unwilling to just like acknowledge that he's outmatched right they, they, you know, the British Admiralty should have sent a larger ship. That you know, this was a tact- This was a strategic error made above his head, and they need to just go back and right. get you know send send somebody else. Sure, and so uh, the movie then follows Jack as he um, has to overcome smaller obstacles out on the ocean as he's um, at at once. It's a really interesting dichotomy that he's both prey and predator. Yeah, because it's, you're also kind of let known sort of at the beginning of the movie that like from our point of view Jack is supposed to be hunting down this ship the Akron and yeah. sinking it but it's also sort of intimated that like they've been given similar orders yes. about the surprise uh, which is Jack's ship and so it's like who's really hunting who is also mm-hmm. a question that, that's constantly raised about the film and so uh, there's a, a series of obstacles that they have to overcome while they're out at sea. They have to. Uh, the movie opens up with a fight scene. So the first thing they have to do is sort of fix the ship on the run. They have to, um, uh, you know, escape long enough in order to do that. This shows that uh, Jack has opportunities to show his uh, tac- tactical mind and his ability to think outside the box mm-hmm. to, and be clever in order to come up with solutions. Um, he uh, establishes. The movie establishes pretty quickly that he's uh, he's not a uh, tyrant on his boat, right. but he is um, 
he's disciplined but also loved mm-hmm. but as the as they continue to pursue the Akron yeah. he starts to become more and more tyrannical yeah. in his pursuit Th- those relationships are tested yeah they start to get mm-hmm. strained um and so uh and all of that sort of comes to a head um when Stephen is injured uh and the question comes will they fight you know, when the time comes, when they meet the Acheron, has he driven his crew to the point where they are not going to be useful? Right. Um, you know, because when you think about any any military situation, man and beast has to reach the end with the strength to fight, to quote Theoden, son of Thingol. Sure. And um, if you've driven your crew to the bone, oh, great, we finally caught them, and now they're just going to sink us because everybody's, like, just laying out because right. they're too tired. and Right. So the question is: Will they fight? Are they are they going to be driven too hard? Will they mutiny? Um, and that's uh, mutiny is never really a serious threat in this particular story because you don't get the feeling that first of all, historically speaking, mutiny was extremely rare in the British military, yes, the British Navy, because they would just kill you, right? Um, and uh, they did not tolerate it. Even if it, mutiny was fully justified, they still hanged all the mutineers. Um, and they did that more than once. But it, it was a very unusual thing for that to happen. Um, I have no idea how, because the British Navy was a very hard life, mm-hmm. um, especially if you were just a, a you know, jack, foremast jack, as they said. Um, and uh, you were subject to military discipline. Even if you didn't volunteer, they would press gang people out of their homes. Right. Um, so when wars declared, they would send press gangs on shore with an officer and a bunch of sailors with clubs. And if they caught you out by yourself... If you were a man, they would take you and they would cut the waistband of your pants so that you had to hold your pants up and you couldn't run. And then they would march you to the ship and they would read you in and you were now a Navy sailor. And if you had never sailed before, then they would rate you as a landsman and pay you almost nothing. And then once you learned your job, then they would rate you as a seaman. And then if you were really good at it, you'd be an able seaman. And then if you became a specialist, then you could be promoted into like a a specialized job, like a carpenter or something like that. So... But these people are pressed from their home. And Stephen makes this point in he the does. movie. Like, he does. These guys are being dragged out of their homes. They're basically enslaved to the British Navy. Technically, they're paid, but they're always six months in arrears. They have family at home. They may not have even had a chance to say goodbye. Their wife's probably wondering what happened to them. Eventually, they would have gotten a chance to send a letter home or someone would notify them. But, like, imagine that. Just not being at, like, getting pulled over yeah. on the side of the road now, driving home, and the police just take you and make you join the army. Right. Um, I mean, you could imagine, uh, I don't, I don't know how they managed to keep him from mutinying constantly. Sure. That's my point. And so, uh, a know, point that Steven makes as well to keep, to keep a crew in that situation, not merely not mutinying, but also working well together towards a common goal right. is a testament to Jack's skill as not merely a, like a sailor and a, and a person who knows the sea and his craft, but also as a diplomatic force to like keep this disparate group of people of varying degrees of education, varying ages and delegating his authority to his officers in a way that keeps everything running smoothly. And it has to, because you need all those hands to run a a sailing ship. It was a hugely like it it was incredibly complex. You, You think, I think sometimes people think sailing ships, you just turn the wheel and it goes left and right, but you don't, that's, that's one thing you do. You do turn the helm, but you also have to move the sails and you have to set certain sails and take some down constantly, 
constantly watching the wind, constantly right. watching what's going to come up next. Checking depths. Yeah. Right. Have, Check. a, have a guy on the lid dropping, dropping a thing down to see how deep the water is sure. and having to know where you are. Um, being able to, being able to figure out where you are based on the position of the sun using right. the tools of the trade. So just a vast amount of knowledge and, I totally derail what you were saying. No, yeah, I I don't want to give too much of the of the movie away, but um, the movie is essentially a series of um, ad, of small adventures and obstacles that Jack has to overcome in in pursuit of his ultimate goal, which is sinking the Akron. And um, and by the end, he has to learn uh, from uh, Stephen, who who he is been at odds with and there's been a growing tension between the two friends for the entire film um and in in order to do things sort of not by the book right like sort of outside um a clever way of thinking which he's already kind of demonstrated that he's willing to do um but he kind of gets his final um clever idea from steven mm-hmm. um which is sort of like a reconciling point between them uh and they're able to well he also recognizes that, that, that there is a price too high right right um he he has the weather gauge is something that comes up a couple of times. The first time they encounter the Acheron, the Acheron comes out of the mist. It's a great scene. It is, man. Um, And gosh, I mean, there's so much to talk about in this movie. Um, Let's just stick to just what happens in the scene. So the, the movie opens and it's quiet. They're in a, like a foggy, it's early morning. Um, they, I don't, I don't want to say it's six bells. That's how they kept time. They had a little hourglass. They would ring the bell, um, and that's how they kept track of the time of day and whose shift it was. To right. Be, uh, so there was a watch below. They basically worked in two shifts. So there's a watch below and there's a watch above. The watch below is whoever's downstairs on their own time, sleeping, you know, playing cards, playing cards, um, carrying on. They they worked four hour shifts, which means that you could only sleep for about four hours at a time before it was your shift again, and. Uh, they probably did that twice a day. Captain was on deck whenever he wanted to be, which was probably most of the time. Um, but uh, anyway, bell rings. People are kind of moving around. Officer of the watch is a midshipman, an older one, who thinks he sees a shape. Right. And the way that the shot is done, You're you not think sure. you see a shape, yeah. but you can't be sure. Yeah. Um, actually, I think he's alerted to a sound. One of the guys up on the bowsprit's like, I think I just heard a, heard a, bell. a, a wave or a bell or something I hit a hole. Um, and so he goes up there and looks around and this guy lacks the conviction of his position to, to give an order, right. either, di- you know, dismiss this. It's not a big deal or be to quarters, uh, which means basically take battle stations. Right. Um, and so he is indecisive to the point where, a, a junior midshipman kind of supersedes him and says, we shall beat to quarters. And so they do. And the ship goes through this routine where they clear away any excess stuff. They take right. down bulkheads. That way you can access all the cannons on the sides and stuff like that. Captain is waking up, comes out, and is like, what's going on? I think we see a ship in the fog. Nothing happens for a few minutes. Um, and so he just is walking back to the quarter deck to start his day. He turns around to take one last look, and he sees in the fog flashes. Yeah, And the flashes happen before he hears the sound but he realizes that it's cannon fire fire. and they're under attack so they lose that fight they get away into the fog and the uh acheron doesn't pursue them but then later in a debriefing session which this is 
there's something we should have talked about a little bit. Maybe we should, maybe we could do it next time in more detail. But um, in storytelling, you have scenes and sequels. Yeah. Which a sequel just means a reaction to what happened in the scene that sure. preceded it. So scene is the boat gets blown up in a fight. The sequel is when they are down below kind of getting the reports for the damage. Sure. And they're explaining in such a way that the audience can understand what happened and how they, they found themselves to be in that position. Stephen Maturin, who is a not who's by the 10th book is not as much of a novice as they make him look in the movie. Right. But he does actually do this role in the books a lot. Where he he's is, like, yeah. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I'm a doctor. Explain that to me. Um, he's kind of like a he really has a lot in common with Dr. McCoy from Star Trek, where yeah. they were like, he's like asking for explanations in layman's terms <laughs> so that the audience can kind of pick up on what's going on. Right. And and they say, well, the weather gauge just means that the wind was in their favor. They don't go into much more detail than that. So that happens twice. Right. They don't get blown up the second time. They escape. Be- because of Jack's cleverness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the weather gauge is, is relayed to you as a viewer as something that is that tips the scales so much that even an inferior ship will have a chance at victory if they can achieve a superior position in the fight, which right. is actually which is accurate. Right. Um, and there's a there's a point in the movie, um, before the start of the third act, kind of the kind of as the second act is closing out, they are chasing the Acheron. They get into that weather gauge position. They've gotten behind them and they're bearing down. Acheron's running. And Dr. Matron is shot on accident um, by some skylarking Marines who were trying to hit a bird. Right. And um, Which is, can we pause there for just sure. a second? They're shooting at an albatross. Yes. Right? Which is great. Yeah. Because the albatross it's, yeah. is... Is that like a good omen? Yeah. And, yeah. As I think that's... I thought, I thought that was really... Because it's not in the book. That's not how it happens in the book. It's in a different book. Uh, well, so there's a similar a similar thing happens in this book too. Yeah. Steve gets hurt and they have to So there's a similar it, the the situation is similar but it's not that he gets shot. Oh, okay. He actually and so in the books, I don't know if you read this and I don't know if he was still like this in the books you were reading, but in mine he's kind of a klutz. Like he's, he's Yeah, he's not he he's, doesn't have good sea yeah, legs. He doesn't have good sea legs. Yeah. And so he actually in in the book he falls like down the um down the hatch like down the hatch oh, okay. and like hits his head and goes into a coma oh and so the this is really this is really cool the the procedure that he does in the movie mm-hmm. where he puts the um the coin the coin yeah. in the guy's head that happens in the book just like that happens in the movie same okay. like basically exactly the same yeah but then in the book they have he had they have to do that to him oh like they have to drain him like his brain oh uh, like there's a buildup of blood in he his does, brain so he that's interesting we're we we'll come back sorry around. yeah sorry we'll come back around yeah, we'll come back around. um because there's going to be a lot of those where it's like this happened in that book this happened in that book sure so um yeah so anyway he gets shot in the stomach not, yes not instantly fatal but like serious enough that if he doesn't get surgery he's gonna die so nobody can do surgery because he's the ship's surgeon and he's a real one right which is very rare on a navy ship usually right. it was like some sawbones. <laughs> sure um a lot of times it would be like the clerk or something like it was just who's got steady hands and doesn't throw up when they get blood on them um especially smaller ships would not have a real doctor just couldn't afford them and so matron initially joined up with jack because he had debt problems um and wanted to get out of town and they become friends mostly because they both love music that's kind of the the first thing that brings them together 
Um, so he ends up kind of following Jack throughout his naval career. But anyway, they're on this one. He gets shot, so they, they go back. They need to be on land. Right. And uh, where he can operate um, on a, on a so it's like a level non-moving surface. So he performs surgery on himself using uh, mirrors and stuff. Gets the bullet out. And in order to, to achieve this, Jack has to let the Acheron go. Right. Um, he's got him almost at his mercy, but he's like, finally, it's not, it's worth, been, it's been the whole pursuit of the whole movie. Yeah, it's not worth the death of my best friend. So he goes back, um, while the doctor's recovering from his wound, uh, he, he's fascinated by whole various forms of fauna. He's a naturalist. Yes. Yes. And so he's enjoying the Galapagos islands a great deal because that's all sorts of strange things there. So they're wandering around looking for things. He spots the Acheron, which has returned to the Galapagos as well, in search of whalers. They were a privateer right. in, the, in the movie, and so they, they sailed with French papers, but they were permitted to attack any, basically anything that wasn't French um, and take its cargo and just sell it off and so. keep it and get rich. So it was a good way to get rich in those days. There was English privateers as well and American ones, which will become, in, you know, we'll talk about that soon too. Sure. Um, and... Uh, they they discover ultimately, and we're going to spoil the movie here. Yeah, um, I guess we kind of have to. So if you haven't seen it yet, stop now and go watch it. But uh, they decide that they're going to disguise the the surprise as a whaling ship and lure the Acheron in to board them. And then when they're at such close range that the Acheron's advantages are are negated, they're just going to board and use the element of surprise to overwhelm the the crew and take that ship. Um. Their plan depends immensely on the ability to dismast it as well. They have to shoot the mast with cannons. They have to hit it enough times that it falls over. Right. Very commonly, to happen, it happens all the time in, in naval warfare. Um, the, the masts are very big, thick planks, but when you think about how much force is being pushed on them, they're held up by not merely the stick itself, but all kinds of complicated ropes and, and stuff. And in... Whenever there was a naval fight, there was different kinds of cannonballs they would shoot, and you would often hit rigging and sails and masts, and they would fall off. Pieces of them would fall off. So ships carried spare ones and stuff like that, but they needed to break the mast. So they had to bring it in close enough that their not big enough guns would be able to dismast it, then get over there. So they do... Becomes a big ship to ship battle. It's a great action sequence at the it is. end. It is. And they, uh, the Acheron strikes and they, they take it as a prize. And then in a scene we don't see, they kind of jury rig up a mast and they order it to go back to get a proper refit. And the movie ends with a great stinger where they realize <laughs> that the captain of the Acheron uh, faked his own death. All right. Um, and so they decide to turn around and go back and follow the Akron to make sure no funny business happens. And that's kind of how the that's movie concludes. How yeah. And you're just, it's a, it's not exactly sequel bait, but you're like, Oh, they're off to another adventure. You know, right. they could, it could right. easily be a sequel to that. So there's your movie. Yeah. Um, man, there's a good movie. Well, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll peel the movie apart a little <laughs> bit. Uh, I think at the end, Maybe we books are going to be tough because we read so many. Yeah. Do you want to just talk about? Well, let's talk about. Uh, let's see. So, the, so the books that I read, the first one, Master and Commander. Um, I read the second one, Post Captain, which was my least favorite of the four that I read. Okay. And then I read uh, the third one, which is called. I don't remember what it's called. The fourth one is called the Mauritius Command. Um, the third one was the best one, which is funny because I can't remember the name of it. Um, <laughs> But of the of the four that I read, I liked the third one the best. Um, it was 
uh, e- each one, uh, it's um, basically it's Jack. He gets promoted in the at the beginning of the first book to master and commander, and is given a command, and he performs well. Um, he he's friends with Stephen Matcher, and they they you know they have some adventures. Um, and uh, the second one, he is a master and commander during that book. And most of the book takes place on land, and there's an annoying love triangle going on. Yes, um, which that was I, referenced. I did in my... not enjoy. Um, it's very boring. I didn't care, and it was hard to keep track of all the people involved. Yeah. So, uh, eventually, um, Jack is given another command, and it's a it's a weird. It's like a, they called it. They, they jokingly call it the carpenter's mistake. Um, it was called the. Uh, Gosh, I can't remember. The Polycrest. It was called the Polycrest. And it was a rocket ship. It was a ship that had been designed to fire rockets rather than cannons. Okay. But the but the rocket system didn't work. So they, they retrofitted it for cannons. But because of its design, it was very ungainly and hard to sail and didn't behave like a regular ship of its, of its rating would do. And so Jack just recklessly kind of takes it into a French port. They end up stealing a French Corvette and just leaving with it. And uh, he gets wounded. And um, there's a lot that happens in that one. At the end of it, he's promoted to post-captain, hence the name. Uh, The next one, he gets command of a ship that is sent out to hunt French privateers in the Indian Ocean. They go to India for a while. The love triangle finally gets wrapped up. Um, Stephen Matron uh, wins a duel against um some jerk i don't remember uh and um he gets shot okay Um, i don't know if that's the duel yeah he gets shot in the duel that's what it is interestingly enough though and you'll get you'll get this because you watch the movie when he duels he takes off all of his clothes except for his underwear and they're like what are you doing and he says, I, I don't want any of my clothing to get pulled into the wound. There you go. Which is exactly what happens, exactly in, the what happens in the movie. Um, yeah. And so in the book, that's not what happens. But he does get shot. They do. He gets on the ship anyway, and then they go to an island where they fix it. And while he's there, he discovers a turtle that he names Testudo Albrey, which there's which, a joke in the movie yes. about that. He talks yes. about he's going to name a turtle after him. He actually does in that in that book. That's um, awesome. They find a, a undiscovered turtle while he's there. So, the fourth book is a is a much more historical uh, thing. Obviously, Aubrey character is plugged into a real historical thing where uh, there's an island off of the west coast of Af- east coast of Africa, I should say, that was a French island, and they were using it as a base to raid British shipping, which was running from England to India around the Cape. Mm-hmm. And so it was a it was a really advantageous position for that. So they launch a squadron from South Africa, which I guess is still a British holding, and um, Jack is put in charge of it, and he's given the rank of Commodore Second Class, which is just a captain who's in charge of several ships, pretty much. And um, stuff happens, and they kind of win eventually. Sure. Um, so. Tell me about the yeah. far side of the world. And so in far side of the world, uh, Jack is commissioned. The the surprise, uh, there's rumors that she's going to be decommissioned. Yeah. That's how the book opens up. And so he's able, but because the uh, admirality is in good spirits, because he's just been promoted, I can't remember to what, but he's like got like, it's he's still admiral, but it's like better admiral. I can't remember how 
exactly how it works. Aubrey's an admiral. No, no. Um, oh, the uh, admiral. That the gives admiral. Him the job. Yeah, oh, that okay. gives him that. So like he, Aubrey thinks he's going to lose a ship, and okay. he's like, ah, drink with me yeah. and go do this thing, yeah. and because uh, everybody gets to go do a thing now. Yeah. And uh, like, which is crazy if that's how it works. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that I think that was pretty common. Like uh, sailor, like captains who didn't have a ship. So the British Navy had a certain number of ships, and they had a certain number. Of, and, and depending on your rank, you could only be in command of certain ratings. So like a master and commander could not command any vessel that was larger than twenty guns. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe eighteen guns, even it might have been less than that. Um, but uh, above that rank is what was called a post ship, and that's why I was called a post cat. Had to have a post captain to command it. So anything from 20 guns to however many, 110 or whatever the giant, most biggest ones were. Sure. And then admirals were not usually in charge of a single ship. They were in charge of lots of ships. Right. So, um, but the higher rank you got, there was fewer positions available. So you might get promoted to post rank, but if there's not a ship available for you to take, you had to just wait. Right. And so what you would do is you would constantly write letters to the admiralty, impressing upon them your desire for a ship and just bothering them calling in favors i mean it's very political you know some some lord's son who bought a commission would get a ship or who you know some of these guys would would buy their own ships and they would outfit them themselves and you're i mean think about how much it would cost you to build a battleship sure today like a real one and it would probably be a similar cost um and like adjusted for right modern values and stuff um there were privateers who did that. They were not actually Navy guys, but they had enough money that they could just build or buy a ship and buy cannon for it and hire sailors for it and um, Gosh, furnish I it. I can't imagine just being like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a battleship. Yeah. Just sail it out into the mid-Atlantic. And the British would have just been like, welcome to the fight. You know, like, we're just glad to have more ships shooting at Frenchmen. Um, so... Yes, so that is probably true. Yeah. So so he goes and he gets, instead of getting his ship decommissioned, he gets commissioned to chase after not the Akron, mm-hmm. French frigate, but the Norfolk, which is an American privateer Uh-oh. ship. Uh, and so... Uh, and, and this is 1814 or something like yes. that? Yes. So War of 1812 is kind of, is, is ongoing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, uh, the, the British only half engaged in the War of eighteen twelve. Right, they were pretty busy with Napoleon. Napoleon, yeah, that was helpful. Who didn't last a whole lot longer after like eighteen? I don't remember what year he was eventually knocked out of commission, but it was eighteen fifteen or sixteen or something. Right. Like that, so, um, so that's the that's the commission. The surprise, a lot of because the admiralty is such an, in such a good mood, a lot of his um, officers are promoted. So he actually loses a bunch of people, mm-hmm. and so this is where I actually got my first experience with the press gang that you were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah, because needs- they go and they go to the insane asylum yes. and they they just start pulling people out of the insane yeah. asylum and putting them on the ship. Plus there was a, a wrecked frigate um, that where only half her crew survived. Um, called the Defender, and so you have a so his ship is now like a third surprises, yeah. a third defenders, uh-huh. and a third crazy people. Yes, and he's got to try to make it work. Yeah. And so that's sort of like how we're introduced. And they would have clicked up, yeah, like in real life. They they would have they would have messed with the guys that they. I want to say that. I mean, they would have sat down to eat with the guys that they that they know. Sure, they would have slept next to them. They would have shared stuff. Right. So and so. Uh, we're in, so we've got our, we've got our commission. We finally get underway 
And what happens next, I, there's no other way for me to describe it. It is a series of short stories. Every chapter <laughs> is just like a little short story of like, here's here's the thing that's happening today. And the chapters and are too long. Too. They're they're too long, and um and and they're all just so disconnected from each other. Uh, but a, a series of things happens. They they go to different islands where Jack. Uh, or sorry, um, where Stephen can uh, do his naturalist thing, which uh, Patrick O'Brien is really interested in. He's mm-hmm. very good at. Um, he's clearly done his research on different plant life and animal life, uh, and and so you get a really good uh, naturalist um, journal mm-hmm. uh, when you're reading this book. Um, there, there's a one, at one point the ship gets struck by lightning, and yeah. so uh, they have to deal with that and make some repairs. Um, they come across other ships and they're always behind the Norfolk. The Norfolk is always like kind of out ahead of them. So they're mm-hmm. they're as they're chasing it down, they're they're always constantly um, like sort of in its wake and dealing with the aftermaths of things. Uh, the Norfolk, the reason why they're going after it is because it is sinking British whalers. Yes. Um, and so that's that's what they're after. Um, and so they're supposed and so they're they're constantly coming on wrecked whaling ships and, yeah. and other things. And the British needed uh, all the help they could get with whaling, honestly. Like <laughs> the British Navy was was better than our Navy, but the American whaler was the world's best whalers. So we can say that. So we can say we got we that. have that. <laughs> we got we have we'll always have Ahab. Uh, so so uh so uh, it's just a series of misadventures at one point. So I mentioned earlier um uh Stephen Matron is kind of a klutz. Yeah. And there's one point where he falls out of the window of the captain's quarters. Like out of the Like, like out, of, out the of the yeah, out the back window. Yeah, the gallery window. Uh, the gallery or... window. And so uh and he can't swim. Yeah. That's the other thing. Is it's it's been set up like 14 different times in the book that he can't swim. Yeah. So Jack immediately without thinking, he just jumps over uh to go get him because they um they were towing uh, and you see this in the movie too a little mm-hmm. bit, but they were towing one of the uh, um, auxiliary boats yeah. um, that, that that they had. They were towing. Um, it was uh, they were towing it behind them, and so Jack's plan was to just go out there, grab them, put them in the boat, mm-hmm. and you know, then hail the crew and get hauled back in. Well, when he gets out there, he realizes they've already towed the boat in. Like oh. it's it's not out there anymore. Mm-hmm. So now they're just overboard, overboard, yeah, and. Um, so they, they're, that's it. Like they're just overboard. The ship sails away and they're just out there in the middle of the ocean and they get picked up by naked. And there's no other way to say it. Naked Amazonian women. Like there's just, they're on this little skiff uh-huh. and they're, it's all females and they're like super warrior tribalistic. And at one point they want to, um, emasculate the doctor. And like, it's only through like, like they have this like weird religion where they're going to. I mean, it's just great. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. and like, it's just this own little adventure. They end up like getting saved by these two young priestess characters who like don't speak a lick of English, but don't want them to die. Okay. And so they put them on this little sandbar of an island. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah. And um, the surprise ends up finding them. Like, they come back for them and end up finding them. And, and I remember thinking like it, they did it in a way that like made it sound plausible, but like 
why why are we doing this? why is this happening i don't understand what is this further it's it's so it's just and like that was a chapter and then they get back on and it's like okay we're going back after the norfolk and i'm like what what's happening that was it's, a side quest yeah it was that's seriously that is this book it's just every chapter is a side quest just like the one i just described that's funny they were trying and, to level up before they met the norfolk <laughs> that's right and so uh the most disappointing part of the whole book is in the last chapter they pull into this little uh, so Stephen falls it's so he's injured and yeah. so it's similar to the movie where it's like we got to do something he's gonna die mm-hmm. right so they pull they they pull into this little inlet of this island so that they can perform this procedure and there in the bottom of the inlet is the norfolk it's sunk that's it that's <laughs> they never fight it they never catch it it's they they went ashore they ran aground on some on, on some reef and they sunk themselves is dude i was never more disappointed <laughs> in my whole life uh, I, I have to confess this to you and to our listening audience. Oh, there were about 40 pages left in the book. I have not finished it. I, I just, I, when the Norfolk was in the bottom of the bay, I was like, I'm done. What if, I, what if the last 40 pages, it turned out that wasn't really the Norfolk. The whole thing was the Reeves and they had to fight them. Well, the, uh, potentially true, but I just, I just quit. I've never done that before. I've that always had to funny. finish it. It was you just, you rage quit the book. I did. Mm. It, it, so, it, um, it took me a while to figure this out. I, you know, I shared this with you already. The reason why I dislike the book so much is because it reads like a documentary series on uh-huh. di- on like Discovery Plus or something, where it's like this is Lum Lum the koala, and and, and like they they create these like little narratives Today, for Lum Lum. Lum Lum is going to eat some <laughs> right bananas. Some bananas, <laughs> but watch out! There's a tarantula in the banana. Right? Like they create these like little narratives, and the yeah. purpose of the little narrative is just to teach you about koalas. Yeah, that is how the book reads. The purpose of the plot. It's just to teach you what sailing is like in the British Navy in, yeah. in, in 1814. Which you which, might love. Which you might love. Yeah. yeah. And if you do, man, uh, it's uh, I'm read it. Because he is... Patrick has done his homework. Yeah. He is brilliant. Um, I have I, I know so much more about sailing than I ever thought I wanted to know. Um, I also know a lot more about fauna and botany and animal life than I ever thought I wanted to know through Stephen's adventures uh, and meteorology. Yeah, and all, I'm just yeah. just all kinds of stuff. The, but it's he, he has certain interests. Uh, the author has certain interests. Obviously, the biggest one being historic naval right. stuff. Right. He's really interested in period music. Yes. Um, he's really interested yes. in that um, flora and fauna of the era and the, the process of naturalists from the West kind of finding and discovering and cataloging things. Right. Um, he strikes me as a Renaissance man. Yeah. Right? Like he's like, he's really got a lot of knowledge about a lot of different areas and, and um, the characters kind of talk like Renaissance men. Jack, Jack is in the books is always, and I actually kind of get this in the movies a little bit too. He's always kind of self-conscious that he's not saying the right thing at dinner parties and stuff. Yes. Um, he's, he's not as, uh, rhetorically polished, right? But he is more earnest. Um, he, he comes across as uh, people like him because he speaks from the heart. Right. Even though he's a bit clumsier in speech. There's right. kind of a running gag in the books about him always trying to come up with a pun to make everyone laugh. Which there's a reference to in the movie yes. when he makes the weevil joke. Yes. And if you've read the books, you're like, that's because he would do that. I appreciated um, that. that, that I, I will say I appreciated that scene a lot. And then Stephen is, sounds more like a polished orator. Right. Um, and uh, he is a, he's a, a, you know, a physician. Steven's a very strange character. He has like a castle in Spain that's like half because he's half Spaniard and half Irish. 
or something like that. Something like that. Uh, he has it, the castle is mostly in disrepair, but it is technically his. Um, he he is a spy. Um, yes. He is a, a sort of a Republican, which at the time that that's not a Republican in the American sense. That means he is kind of an anti-monarchist. Right, right, He's right. more of a like um, revolutionary type. Like I, I'm more of a classical liberal. I sympathize with the Americans. I sympathize with the Irish who want independence, but he's also very loyal to his friend and he works for the British. Yeah. And he's not, he doesn't normally get paid a lot for that. Although he does cash in favors often. Right. Um, especially when he can help Jack get a ship or something like that. So, um, that comes up. Um, but he, he seems a lot more like, uh, in control when he's when he's there, he he's not intimidated by anyone. Yep. He's surprisingly skilled with weapons. He's yes. a very skilled pistol marksman. Um, he's a he's a uh, trained fencer, even though he comes across as sort of a like a dilettante. Um, in the movie, he's played by Paul Bettany, who plays him exactly Gosh. like I thought he was. He's great. Movie. Paul Bettany's amazing. Um, and the, and movie. the two actors really do get those two things. Yes. Um, where Jack is, Jack is not stupid, right, by any stretch, but he his his knowledge is more from the school of hard knocks. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and he he there's actually some references in the book to that where. When he's a post captain, he goes back and starts studying midshipman stuff. Because when you're a midshipman, one of the things that you would have to do would be to take cl- like book learning classes. Like the sailing master would have a class every day where he's like, "Today we're going to study spherical trigonometry so that you can you can do the correct math to to find our position on a map and know where we are and how far we travel in a day and stuff like that. All these things are very important to, to be able to sail well. Right. And that's the only thing a sailing master cared about. His job was to keep the ship from running into rocks. Right. And to get the ship from point A to point B in an efficient way. And captains knew how to do that, but the sailing master would have been assigned to a ship for that reason. He's a, he's a, he's a specialist in that one thing. And that's the part of the reason why master and commander is the rank that they had. They were commander of the ship, but they usually were their own sailing master. They would their ship would not have had a devoted sailing master, unless they need one for a specific reason. For example, in a hornblower book, when he's a master and commander, he gets a special sailing master who is knowledgeable about a remote area where they're going to have to go in and find sunken treasure. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this guy's been here before, and he knows the local language. So you're getting a sailing master. Congratulations. And they kind of butt heads and it makes for a pretty, they, but they need each other. So yeah. it makes for a pretty good like character drama. Sure. So um, all that to say that he was not a good student as a midshipman. He kind of barely survived. There's some references to how he got lucky in his oral board, um, which is how you were promoted from midshipman to lieutenant. You would have to go before captains and they would ask you hard questions and they could ask anything they wanted to. Pretty much. And so sometimes they would ask highly technical things where I'd be like, okay, here you're, you're at long, latitude and longitude of this. How many days would it take you to get to this latitude and longitude uh, going, you know, uh, with a three masted ship of the line and your average speed is going to be eight knots and whatever else. And so you'd have technical things or they could also be like, um, you know, how do you, how do you position yourself in this type of battle formation? How, right. Like, so he got lucky with a good question, but he didn't have a lot of technical knowledge, kind of bluffed his way through crammed the last day before his exam, whatever. So he's going back and rereading and he's like, ah, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. I wish I was a better student back when I was 13. Yes. So that, that comes up when he in, 
far side of the world because he's got these he's got several kids yes uh on board and so their education is a thing that he takes very seriously yeah but it comes from a place of i wish i was better educated yeah right so like i'm gonna try to give them something i don't have another thing there seems to be a genuine affection for the captain and he is a fatherly figure to them. Yes. If not a fatherly figure, then a very much older brother. Yes. Who who has acquired wisdom and cares about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the book, um, so another interesting thing, I think you'll appreciate this. Um, one of the uh, subplots of the film is that the as as tensions are growing because Jack is pushing them mm-hmm. um and thing they've had setbacks yeah they've had several like setbacks they, they get into a bad storm they lose a man overboard there's a there's they, they become they get a calm sea yeah, where they're they have the no doldrums. water yeah there's they're running low on on water um, rations and I can't remember what the rations were but they didn't get a lot right because um, you think about how much they, they had to carry fresh water in wooden barrels and by the time it'd been in, in those barrels for like a month, it'd be like alive with green algae and just probably tasted terrible. But sure. you got a certain amount a day right. for everything, washing, shaving, drinking. And then you would, when you started running low, you have to cut it down to like two thirds rations, right? which is not enough to not be thirsty. Then you cut it down to half and people start kind of losing it a little bit. Right. So you had to periodically pull up in water and they could carry maybe like a couple of months of water with them. Um, but like if you got stuck somewhere and you were already low, you could be in a tight spot. Sure. And so in the movie, they talk about the Jonah, right? Yes, Who is yes. uh, a person that they believe uh, is causing bad luck, right? right. The, they think the person Sailors has brought a curse. That's right. kind, of a, uh, kind of a famous thing. Um, and so in, in our movie, it's the, um, you correct me if, it, if this is the wrong title, the midshipman from the very beginning yes. uh, of the film. Who's Mr. Hollum. Mr. Hollum. And yeah. he can't, he's um, really indecisive. He's kind of weak. Yes. Um, he's, a, he's 29? 30. Yeah. Yeah, he's, um, because he's like 26, 27. He's like, I'm actually 30. Yeah, um, which is frighteningly old for a midshipman. For a midshipman. Um, by the time you're 30, you, you, a career that's going smoothly would have already become a commander. Right. Um, and somebody who's really good might be a captain by then. So like as a mid, he, he should have passed the exam for lieutenant like 10 years ago. 10 years ago, right. And so uh, this character, they kind of believe is brought bad luck because he, he does seem to be kind of like whenever something bad happens, he's at the center of it. Yeah. He's, um, he's always on, he's always the officer of the watch. Right. He's yeah. just kind of around. And so, which is just whoever, so there's always an officer on duty to make snap decisions. For instance, if you see a, sh- if you see a ship off the bow, an officer would have to give the command of load the guns and run them out or beat to quarters or whatever the case may be, or like send up a signal to sure. them so that we can communicate. So there's an officer, and then he would also say, my compliments to the captain, sail-sided in heavy fog. Please, you know, you know, tell him that we're waiting his orders or something right. like that. So he's the officer of the watch. He's a midshipman, um, and he's and, he's and, been he's been shown to be indecisive. Right, indecisive. and Kind of afraid. Yeah, and so the crew have kind of turned on him and made him the pariah of their growing... Fear, their tension, their mm-hmm. anger. Which is very awkward uh, because he's he's an officer. He's a, a petty officer. Right. So they are required to obey his orders. And they are required to show him a certain amount of respect, even though they don't like him. And there's even a sort of 
superstitious fear that this guy is causing weird stuff to happen. Sure. Stuff that it, it's irrational. Like he's calling up the devil ship. Right. The guys. Yeah. The, yeah. Right. And so he ends up picking up a cannonball yeah. and just throwing himself overboard because he believes himself to be a curse on the yeah. ship and he wants to, to end it all. Um, and so they refer to this as a Jonah. Yeah. Somebody who's go, goes overboard because mm-hmm. of bad luck or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, he's ca- his presence is causing God's yeah. wrath to be poured out on the poured ship. On right? the ship. That's, that's kind of the implication. That's kind of the idea. Uh, in Far Side of the World, a similar thing happens, but it's kind of different. Um, and it's actually much more deserved. So I, I thought that that scene was really tragic. Yeah. Right? Like, I he, mean, he's, he's a sad character. He's a sad character. I kind of think of him as a, like, he's he is juxtaposed to Jack, where Jack is probably too sure of himself. The opposite of that is this other guy right. who is so unsure of himself that he can't even move. Like he's paralyzed in his life. Right. It's not that he can't physically move, but like he cannot take forward steps in his career because he's too scared. Probably he's too scared to take the, the lieutenant's exam. Right. Um, and because he's afraid of failure. And right. He's afraid of making the mistakes and doing the wrong things. And as a result of that, he ultimately is self-fulfilling prophecy. He fails. And because... He starts to, you know, he's already despairing about that. He starts to believe maybe that there is something to the the superstitious uh, theories about who he is and what he's doing. Sure. He he ultimately commits suicide by jumping overboard with a cannonball until he's too deep to return to the surface and drugs. Right. So in the book, Mr. Hollum is actually really two characters. There's a Mr. Hollum um, and another character whose name is escaping me at the moment. But the way that that subplot, and it's just one of the many adventures, one of the many side quests, uh, is that there's actually a woman that comes on board. And her job, there are actually two ladies on board. Um, one of them is sort of like an old an old seamstress, and her job is um, to like take care of the farm animals. And then there's a young lady who's brought on board, um, and her job is to be teacher to the uh, children, like the young children on deck. Okay. And um, she is Sounds married. Like a bad idea. Uh, yeah. And she, this young lady, is married to, um, you said the title earlier, but the, the, the officer who's in charge of guns. The, the chief gunner? Chief gunner. Mm-hmm. She's married to the chief gunner. Okay. So they're, they're a married couple that have come on board. Um, she, throughout the entire voyage, is having an affair with Mr. Holland. Oh. Um, and so, or actually, sorry, Mr. Holland might be her husband and she's having an affair with the characters now. I can't remember. Anyway, point is she's having an affair. Yeah. He eventually finds out the husband finds out. And when they're ashore on the Galapagos, he murders both of them. Okay. He kills his wife and he kills the guy she's having an affair with. Just, yeah. And like, he says that they've like run off mm-hmm. together but like everybody knows that that's not the case. Yeah. Oh, and, and what you find out, um, is that she's pregnant. Like she's having an affair. She's pregnant. He's impotent. That that's oh, also okay. revealed. So like yeah. he knows that the baby's not his. Yeah. And um, she, uh, she um, it's actually really tragic. She performs like an abortion on herself. Uh-huh. Um, survives. Yeah. Survive. Like it's a close call, but she survives. Um, but he finds out about it, mm-hmm. and so he ha- he kill he murders them both. When he comes back on board, this of is course, feel good story. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So he's the Jonah, the husband who murders the wife and okay. the and the adulterer. He he becomes the Jonah, and so like he gets thrown overboard by the 
people. Like oh, he just okay. they just and I can't remember if he throws himself overboard or if they throw him overboard. But like it could be one of those. It, it's like it it's, one of those where it's unclear. It is. It's like super. They just wake up one day. Yeah, and they wake up one day and he's gone. Yeah, and it's it, it's super unclear. But like nobody's sad. And you know that reminds and, me of the of a hornblower uh, story. And Lieutenant Hornblower, the captain, is a horrible tyrant who's losing his mind. And they're they're considering a, a mutiny. The officers are, and they uh, one night the captain, who's horribly paranoid, uh, gets word from one of his stool pigeons that uh, the officers are all meeting up in the orlop, like kind of below decks. And so he takes off and is like, "Get the marines! We're going after him!" And the, the officers kind of scatter because they get word that he's coming. They all go different directions, and then they get word that the captain has fallen down a hatch. And like busted his head and his face and stuff. And he may not survive. And when everyone gets there, Hornblower's just like standing there kind of looking at him. And they're like, Mr. Hornblower, what happened to the captain? And every single time he they ask him that, he always goes, I think he must have overbalanced. <laughs> and and uh, you that's that's the only story of all of them that, that is told from a character's POV that is not Hornblower. Okay. And so you never find out. Um, and none of the books is it ever brought up again. Um, but like none of the, at no time does Hornblower ever admit to anyone of doing anything. And so it's left kind of to you, the reader to decide did Hornblower push this guy down the hatch or did he fall right on his own? And, um, I kind of love that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. maybe that's kind of what he was going for here is like, they might've thrown him overboard or maybe he just couldn't take it anymore. Right. Either way. Either way, the Jonah's gone. Yeah, and, and maybe so, you can maybe you can as a reader be like, I would have thrown him overboard. So sure, I right? Think they did. Um, there is, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but this actually brings up an interesting thing. So we can talk about this with the film. Uh, the Master Commander was recently in, got got sort of brought up in the pop culture circles because it uh, was taking some heat for not having any female yeah. <laughs> uh, and not having any, any women on, on board. Yeah. Uh, that was he, uh, maybe a screen rant. Or uh, something? something like that. Somebody. Yeah. So there's this ridiculous thing called the Bechtel test, which came up. It was named after the person who came up with it. And I'm not exactly sure what the point of it is, but the idea is, are there two women having a conversation in the movie that is not about a man? And if the answer is yes, then it passes this test. And so they, they've kind of applied that to different movies to find out if that's the case. And then there's been a, there was a whole list of movies where they were like, there's actually no women characters in it anywhere. Right. And this was one of them. And actually, that whole list was just awesome. Yeah, movies. it was the, some of the best is, movies. Yeah, which was kind of funny. I was like, they, surely they could have found some that were crappy that right. didn't have any women in them. And then it would have made them look better. But it was like a list of great movies, basically. And this was one of them. So yeah, so so uh, master and commander doesn't pass the uh, how do you say it? Batch Bechtel test Bechtel, maybe yeah. maybe yeah, um, but there is actually a, a female character in the books, but she's a, a horrible adulteress yeah. who ends up getting murdered by her deranged husband, and that's just like chapter seven. I'm not gonna <laughs> read that book ever. Uh. Uh, so okay let's talk let's let's move away from like plot elements and just talk broad themes actually i want to uh, br- i want to bring up something here yeah let's talk about 12 year old midshipman okay yes okay <laughs> I, I, i'm glad you did because i didn't want to seem like an idiot and be like what is going on here is was that common is that a real thing uh yeah yeah i think it was wow um so uh the navy took on midshipmen i think the official lowest age was 12 
And then there were some exceptions made, usually for the sons of officers. So if you were, if you were, let's say a first lieutenant, which is how they pronounce it, um, and you had a nine-year-old son, they might let you bring him on board as a midshipman. Oh my goodness! Or as a the the rank that preceded midshipman was called volunteer. So they would, and and there's a couple of the stories. That I read, um, there's a character who becomes a midshipman eventually, but in the first story he's in, he's a volunteer. And so I don't know exactly what their responsibilities would have been. Um, in theory, these are educated. Like they would have been able to read and write, so they would have been maybe like clerks. They could have carried messages, copied orders. That was a big thing where it's like, okay, um, you know, take these written orders, but I need each each lieutenant to get one. So take you gotta make three copies of them. You just got to sit down and write it out and carry them to them. Um, horn there's a hornblower story like that. When he's a commodore, he has all of his midshipmen like writing out copies of his orders. Um, and uh, so they they would have done things like that. But midshipmen in theory were officers in training, so they would have been given responsibilities, and it depended a little bit on what they needed. So like during action, an, uh, a midshipman would have been in charge of like half of one of the gun decks. So you'd be in charge of like, say gun 13 through gun 24. And, um, you would have had to organize the gun crews. And then if, okay, we've, the ships come about. So now we got to engage them with the larboard battery. So you, th- you know, everybody kind of knows like these three guys stay with a starboard battery, but then these five guys switch over. And then the three guys that are standing here are ready to help. So that, and so there's just organization of that. Um, during not when they weren't in, in action, they would have been, for instance, in charge of I don't know, maybe like the main top. So there would be a midshipman whose job it was to make sure that the top men were reefing sails correctly, that the block and tackles were clear. There wasn't sure. like junk in them, and they weren't knotted up and just stuff like that. So, and then in the process of all this, they had to be tutored throughout the day. But you're talking about a 12-year-old who's put in charge in a supervisory role over, in some cases, able seamen right. who were 50 and could hand reef and steer and had lost limbs and parts of limbs and eyes and ears in service to their country already. Right. And they just did it. They did it. Um, and some were better than others. The ones in the movie are besides Mr. Hollum, pretty good. There's a couple that you don't see much of, like they're kind of in the background, but there's two main ones. Right. One of them looks like a 12 year old. Yeah. Blake, Blake, yeah, Blakely. Blakely. Um, and then Wellard is the, um, slightly older one. Right. Um, Blakely loses his arm in the first battle. Yeah. Like Um, the first five minutes of the film, he takes a bad splinter in the arm and then Steven Matron has to, has to saw it off. And so, and that's an interesting scene too, because, uh, Jack Aubrey gives him a book about, uh, Lord Nelson, who was the best admiral that the British have ever had. He defeated uh, Napoleon's fleet at Trafalgar, which is, if you go to England, there's still a giant statue of Nelson. No, that's not right. There's a place called Trafalgar Square, and the statue is actually of Wellington, who beat Napoleon on land. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's a big guy on a horse on top of a pole. Um, but uh, anyway, Nelson lost an arm. And so there's a, there's kind of a subtle thing there where it's like, here, you should read this while you're recovering. And uh, he doesn't really mention it. But then the pages turn to where there's a portrait of Nelson. And you can tell that he's got his jacket buttoned up yeah. to where there's an empty sleeve. 
and uh, it was most likely Jack's kind of clumsy attempt to encourage him of like, yeah. you can still be right. a sailor. You can right. still be an officer because uh, you're talking about Nelson, who was the best, you know. Right. He was like their um, Michael Jordan of the Navy. And, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, loses an arm. Yeah. At and, that age. And just. And there's a comment made about like, well, his father would have understood. He knew the life. Right. Which I think is meant to. I don't know if that character is in another book. But it could be that this guy is a friend of Jack's, and he took this this young midshipman on as a favor. I think that's what it is, because he says right after that his mother won't. Yeah. So it makes it sound like there were like I, this kid is he here as a family. Yeah, like this yeah. kid's here uh, as a favor. Now right? that's mo- right. and and in historically speaking, that's usually what a midshipman would be. In order, there was very limited spots. Midshipmen were kind of more trouble than they were worth in a lot of cases until they had to gain some experience. So to take on a real fresh one, like a guy that didn't know anything, that was twelve, not even strong enough to be useful in terms of like pulling ropes around and sure. stuff, you know, and, sure. and and too too confused and seasick all the time and. Um, and, you know, probably cried themselves to sleep until they kind of got away from homesickness and just a really hard school of life to be in. And so in order to get these guys on board, basically a rich guy would have to go to a captain and be like, I would like you to take my son on and I'm going to give him 500 pounds a month in allowance and he can use 200 of it. Nudge, nudge. Right. So captains would be basically paid to right. take them on. Or it would even be more crude than that, where it's like, I'll give you 2,000 pounds to take my son, or I'll buy you two new cannon sure. for your ship, or something like that. And and what they wanted, what it was basically, it was an upper crust apprenticeship program. Right. Because you know, it was common in that era to go and be like, will you take my son as a, a blacksmith apprentice? Like Johnny Tremaine, right? Like a silversmith. And um, if you And if they said yes, often the 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 master craftsman would be paid something as a like a tuition kind of and so that's kind of what they did here um but these things went into action yeah i mean these are battleships right uh and i I remember seeing that movie the first time and being like what are they doing like why are these actors 12 and it wasn't until i read hornblower um and did a little research because i was like there must be something to that sure in the hornblower books he's a midshipman at 17 uh, which is more reasonable. Yeah, right. Because that's we're getting close to like high school graduation. Like that's a little more in line with what we think of as an adult. But like that would have been kind of late for most midshipmen. Wow. Honestly. Um, but if you think about it, if you're a 12 year old and you start a skilled trade, by the time you're 18, 19, 20, do you think you know that trade well? I mean, you've probably done it all. Right. Um, if you've survived. Right. If you've made it. Um, so they would be well prepared for the lieutenant's test, and that's. I mean, you're talking about the Navy that ruled the ruled the world. Right. So they must have done something right. Sure. But I am fascinated by that idea of, yeah. I'm not saying that it was a good one, but I, I constantly, when I was, I mean, you, you teach at a classical Christian school that I used to teach at and the knowledge that at one time, seventh grade boys would have been in charge of <laughs> warfare on a battleship, a top of the line, like, I mean, this would be very similar to like being in charge of an aircraft carrier today, similar level of military might. Right. And sleeping away from home, having to watch their own money, sorting out problems below decks. Like if there's a midshipman bullying others, they would have to sort that out. Like the other officers are not likely to intervene unless people are like really being hurt and finding their way. Right. And now, and and you're like, well, we gotta, 
<laughs> I gotta make sure that they don't forget to bring a sprite on Friday to the socials. So let's send twelve emails. Uh, and I'm like, guys, can we just let them forget the sprite? And, right. You know, and learn. Um, so I, I think, I think of that when I, when I think of like, what, what can young people do? Yeah, for sure. There's probably a balance to be struck between, you know, dying in service of your country and being like a lout who plays Fortnite all the time. Right. But, uh, let's find that balance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Um, and there's a great scene in the, it's maybe my favorite part in the whole movie. It's right at the beginning in the first battle. I think it's Blakely who's um sort of cowering Mm -hmm. and jack you know pulls him up and says you know everyone stands tall on the quarter deck something like that yeah Uh, stand tall on the quarter deck always yeah Yeah. stand tall on the quarter deck always right like and like but also like what a what a like you said what a school of life to learn in yeah that you're 12 and like you're cowering behind because there's cannon, they're shooting cannon. They're shooting cannonballs at you, and things are exploding all around you. Men yeah. are dying in front of you, and the captain stands and stand tall on the quarterdeck yeah. always. You know, and just and he does, like and that. he loses his arm. And if you think about it, like hiding behind the rail is not going to help, right? You know, if a twenty-four pound cannonball hits the rail, it's going to go through it and you, and you're you're going to wake up at the pearly gates. It's fine. So you may as well act like you're not scared. Sure. And that's kind of what officers had to do. And right. The British, we've talked about this before when we talked about um, uh, the John Henry Patterson, the Ghost in the Darkness, where they were courageous to the point of virtual insanity. And it's like, <laughs> yes, we're standing here shooting at each other from very short range relative to, you know, a cannonball could hit something a mile away, but like most ship to ship action was much closer. You know, right. Within 500 yards. And, uh, it's broadsides and it's, it's very similar to musketry where it's like we shoot at the ship. Right. We probably are going to hit people, but like they aren't aiming at you necessarily. Sure. Unless they have snipers, uh, in the, like up in the masts and stuff, which they occasionally would do. That's actually how Nelson died. Right. Um, which is kind of ironic because Nelson thought that snipers in the, in the mast was a bad idea because he was always worried that musket fire would set the sails on fire. Um, and then he got shot by a French sniper, but, um, they, uh, you know, they would shoot at the ship's hull, um, unless they were trying to not shoot at the hull for some reason. So they could load the cannons with grape shot, which was about the size of a golf ball. And then they would spray the decks and try to hit the guys. And then they could stick canister in there, which is, if you can imagine like a coffee can filled with musket balls. So it's even smaller. And then occasionally you'd hear about them using chain shot, which is like two cannonballs with a chain in the middle. And they would sling around in the air, and that was meant to tear up the sails and rigging. So depending on what they wanted, um, they might want to slow a ship down. They might want to kill the people so they can capture the ship. Right. If it's full of valuable cargo, they wouldn't want to shoot a bunch of holes in the cargo, especially if it's flammable. Like if it's a powder barge or something like that, and they want to capture that. Yeah. They don't want to blow it up. Um, But you just got to stand there you know, as an officer and continue to give orders. And then everybody's running around under fire. Can't see because the gunpowder smoke from your own ship. Sure. And, you know, just all the things that they had, they would have to do. And so you can imagine all the practice that would have to go into their movements and, and yeah, you have to be able to do it blindfolded almost literally. Sure. And, uh, I just, it's incredible, man. Yeah. It is absolutely, it blows my mind. Um, what they were capable of, what these men were capable of. They're men. I mean, they're, yeah. they were, they were full grown men, you know? Um, 
Stand tall in the quarter deck. Always. That's a great, it's a great scene. It's a great line delivered. And then, you know, the kid loses his arm. You know, yeah. it's like, wow. And one of the midshipmen dies. Um, probably more than one, but one of the ones that we, we get to know in the, in the story. Sure. Um, so, you know, you kind of get to see the, the the human cost of this where yeah like some of these kids didn't come out of this and and become officers right um and i imagine that was you know i'm yeah. sure that was true a lot right you said it well earlier if you survived yeah you know if you if you get to 17 18 19 you're gonna know your trade but how many of them never got there yeah yeah and and honestly you know this this uh the the career of the guys in these fiction stories are insane. If anybody actually did all this, they would be to this day they would be a household name. Right. Um, it would have been very unusual for somebody to encounter direct action that often. Um, there were a lot of officers that went almost their whole career without ever actually having a ship to ship fight, because it would depend a little bit on where they were stationed and sure. what kind of ship they had. Like if you were on blockade duty in the English Channel. You could be a captain. You could sail back and forth for weeks, months, and the, the French would never come out. And you might get transferred to do something else. And then you might end up, you know, in charge of something more dull, like a like a powder barge or something, you know. Like there, there was legitimate need for, like, uh, other jobs. And so then you have – but then you have a guy like Jack Aubrey where in 20 books he gets engaged in – a hundred battles or something like, you know, there's more than one per book. And you're right. like, okay. Well, I guess that's why I, I drew the short straw because there's not even a single fight in my Oh, yeah. Well, you should read some of these <laughs> other ones. Um, now, I'll say this about the one that I just finished, the Mauritius Command. He's a Commodore, and so there's several battles, but he's not in all of them. Right. Some of his other ships and stuff like that. Maturin right. sometimes is there. POV switches in the book between the two people, mm -hmm. and it's a it's abrupt. And, it is. And it's confused. Sometimes it took, would take me a page or two to be like, did we switch characters yep, again? Yep. I had the same experience, same experience. Um, and then some chapters are written in epistolary format where it's like journal entries. Yep. Um, so there, he just kind of is a, he's, he's scattered. Yeah. In very his, scattered. Uh, style. And I don't I think it's a form matching function either. Yeah. Right. So like sometimes that scattered, an author scattered intentionally because he's trying to, um, he's trying to get his form to match his his content or whatever, but yeah. I did not I do not think that that's the case with Patrick. I think he's just got so much knowledge and is, has a hard time streamlining it into plots. Maybe so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love the tension uh, in the films of uh, duty. Yeah. Um, and what what does it mean to carry out one's duty faithfully um, versus camaraderie, friendship, brotherhood. Um, man, period. They don't do period pieces like they used to. They're not really in fashion anymore. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a more recent one that that I liked. I guess Pride, not Pride and Prejudice. Little Women is probably the most recent period piece that I watched. It was okay. Um, it's not as good as the old one. I don't know. The period pieces are. I, I'm a big fan of period pieces. I like. Yeah. I like when they're done well. I've seen a lot that are not done well. Um, well, you know, budgetary constraints is a big deal. Yeah. And I don't know how much I, well, I probably have the info here. Actually, I was just looking at it. Um, Master and Commander made a lot of money. So it's, you got a two hour and 18 minute runtime. Um, so the director is Peter Ware, who did um, uh, Dead Poets Society. Wow. And The Truman Show. Does that's a good pedigree of movies and, and a couple of other things that are are kind of lesser known. Um, 
Where is it? All right, budget was 150 million estimated. Uh, gross worldwide 211 million. So okay. they made they made some money back. Um, wasn't it wasn't a massive thing, but they, they not a windfall, well. but a success. Yeah. Um, so they uh, um, they didn't make any sequels to it. Uh, I think I think based on the way they titled it, they probably intended to at some point make more. Um, but they also borrowed from multiple movies. There's, uh, like we said, there's several scenes. Like, for instance, there's a scene where um, uh, Stephen and Jack are discussing. Uh, it's after they have to flog uh, someone, which is something the British Navy did. They yep. would um, they would seize you up to a grating and they would flog you with a cat of nine tails, which is actually where the phrase "the cat's out of the bag" comes from. Some people think that it's an actual cat coming out of a bag and it's hard to put a cat in a bag so you, you can't get things back in but the idea there is if the cat's out of the bag that's too late to turn back like you have to you have to administer the punishment so you, you at least learn that today um they would <laughs> so the bosun would usually be in charge of, of whipping someone and it would be a, a, usually in a, an increments of a dozen depending on the offense um the british was the only navy that did that the French didn't. The Americans didn't, as far as I know. Um, everyone kind of looked on the British as being barbaric for doing that. And nobody really liked it. Well, there was occasionally, I think, a bad captain who might take pleasure in doing that, like a kind of a tyrannical type. But um, it was always thought of as like a necessary evil. Yeah. And for the sailors, the it seemed, generally speaking, for the sailor, it was like, I'm not going to make any noise. I'm just going to stand here and take it. Um the worst punishment you could get was being called flogged around the fleet, which is where you would be taken from ship to ship and given like 500 lashes or something. Jeez. And uh, if you survived, you'd probably be insane. That would be worse than being hanged in my opinion. But, right. Um, they would only do that to like mutineers and people who murdered their superior officers and like the worst kinds of offenders. Uh, but uh, they did do that. Um, and that happens in this movie once, but there's a discussion being had after the fact where uh, Maturin says he was drunk when he did that, when he failed to salute Mr. Hollum. This is after they've kind of turned on Mr. Hollum. So you need to take the ship's rum and tip it over the side. And Jack says, I'd rather them be drunk from time to time than have a mutiny. And uh, they, so they have a discussion about the morality of mutiny and, it, they don't see eye to eye on it. Well, that takes place in, I think, post-Captain, that, that actual discussion. And, um, like, the, the exact, like, the, the dialogue is directly lifted sure. and put directly into the screenplay. That's interesting because I feel like I remember reading the exact same scene. Well, maybe. And, uh, but I actually don't think it's between, I think you're right in that the dialogue is lifted from the scene you're referencing. But a similar conversation takes place, but it's between Stephen and... Um, Alan in okay. Uh, um, That's the sailing master, right? The sailing master, yeah. yes. Um, I think it's between Stephen and Alan, and it's it's the 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 flavor of the conversation is exactly the same. It yeah. and the the situation that causes it is directly from um the far side of the world. So you have to think that's for the reader's benefit to to have that like to have that hashed out. Because the reader who may not, you know, no nobody in our day and age would tolerate that. Like if a Navy did sure. that, you'd be like, that's an outrage. Um, but uh, they want to, he, he may, it could be that Patrick O'Brien wants to justify that. Or maybe he wants to say, I would have opposed that if I was there. So I'm going to sort of insert this 
critique right uh with the, with this character and yeah that. sure i think he does a good job in that particular sense of presenting a nuanced view because jack sees as i think you're you described it perfectly he definitely doesn't revel in it he doesn't glory yeah. in it it's a necessary evil mm-hmm. for him he refers uh, to himself as no friend of the cat uh in a couple of the books where yeah. he doesn't like to do it but like one in one of the books he i think it's post captain he takes over another man's command because that man has gone to sit in the house of lords for like a, a term so he needs a captain to be in charge of his ship and keep it you know running doing stuff so he gets on it and that guy's not a bad guy but before jack gets there there was some kerfuffle about somebody stole so i can't remember exactly what it was but they're like he's got to get 12 lash he's got to get a dozen and so Jack is like, oh, crap. But I'm not going to super see the captain's order from, you know, I just got here. I'm not going to do that. Sure. So he has to administer this punishment, even though he has no idea what's going on. Um, and uh, uh, it's just kind of like, well, you know, this is part of it. This is part yeah. of being in the Navy. Right. And uh, that's now the officers would not have been. Uh, they would have had, of course, their career, they could be, you know, they could have their commissions taken from them. Um, it was more likely that they would just be kind of taken out of the ship and put into some crappy command or put on the beach at half pay and their career would basically be over. So they would, it would be better for them to just resign and get another job right. somewhere. Um, but uh, midshipmen could be beaten, but not with a cat. It would be more unofficial where it would be like, the midshipman was asleep on duty again. Bosun take him down below and beat his butt with a rattan. <laughs> right. And they would just, it would be kind of like a spanking, basically. And you're sure. like, well, that's appropriate because he's 12. <laughs> um, they probably hit him harder than, you know, you'd get in a, in a spanking. But like, they all talk about when I was a midshipman, we used to have to get bent over a gun and wailed on with a stick when we screwed up. And you kind of stopped screwing up pretty quick. Pretty quick. So, yeah. uh, it was a hard life. But what a so you know I I know we're time is time is pressing but um, one thing I'll share with the the audience um, for both the book and the movie but definitely with the movie um, when I read or watch period pieces that deal with British naval um, experiences in this time period that eighteen you know late. 18th century, early... The age of sail. Yeah, early 19th century. Um, something awakes in my heart mm-hmm. to just want to, you know, take to sail, right? Like, and, and, and not, you know, not on a cruise liner, you know? Yeah. Like, I want sails and rigging and... On a wooden ship. On a wooden creaks. ship that yeah. creaks. And, and leaks. You know, I, there's just something in... And, and you know, I, I don't... I, you know, I just watched Top Gun you know, yesterday and I'd have no desire to fly. Right. So like, I know it's not just like a general adventurous yeah. spirit. Cause like other things that are similar, I don't have this effect, but anytime I see, you know, three masted sloops yeah. cruising across the waves, I just think there's just something in me that just awakens, you know, yeah. it's like some kind of adventurous spirit. And, uh, the master and commander did do that for me, you know, for yeah. sure. So if you are, if you're looking for that romanticized, um, longing of the ocean, um, you know, I, and I, th- I think it's a bleak picture, right? They don't, they don't sugarcoat the the hardness of the life. Yeah. But even so, there's just something romantic about the ocean that 
that caused. Well, it seems, you know, the ocean is formidable, and it seems like to conquer it, you have to be pretty tough. Sure. So, yeah, I sleep in a lame hammock and work in all weather and eat hardtack with weevils in it and have salted beef for every meal and get you know just enough rum with lemon in it to not get uh, get scurvy and like it just it was it was difficult um constantly getting injured from falling stuff uh they i want to say that the statistic was a one on a on a voyage a ship would lose about one guy a week um and that's wow. that's the rate so that would be it would not it wouldn't necessarily be a guy would die every week right but by the time you went out on a voyage and came back, however many weeks you were gone was probably how many guys you would have lost. And that could be in battle or sickness. Sure. But the other thing is, is that once you were out at sea, everybody once everybody had caught everything, it was pretty much over. Right. And, and they would talk about how ships would be very healthy because they were basically in a, in a self-imposed quarantine. Right. Everybody was exposed to everybody else's diseases and then they were immune. Right. And then you would land somewhere and everybody would get sick <laughs> because they, somebody would go ashore and get, you know... A cold or something like that, uh, or an STD. They had a lot of that. Um, sure. Uh, so, or fleas, like they'd have vermin, you know, right. and you had to paint over the fleas and like pick them out one by one and kill them, and it would just take, you know, it would be horrible. Uh, so that yeah, difficult life, but there is something that's particularly beautiful about tall ships. Yep. At sea. Yep. And uh, there is, a, I have that same feeling. I love this subgenre. Sure. Um, I I fell in love with the Hornblower stories first, the books. I hadn't seen the show until later, and the show's okay. It's obviously way lower production value than this one. This is a major Hollywood studio theatrical release, big budget, big actors. Built a full size ship uh, or two. They might have built two. Um, the there's a lot of cool cinematography stuff in this movie. Um. Um, if you get a chance to see behind the scenes stuff, you might be able to find that kind of stuff on YouTube, um, where they talk about how they've matte, they've got matte paintings and a lot of things that are kind of hidden. So there's, there's a lot of optical stuff. They do some miniature stuff. Um, but, uh, man, it feels real. Yeah. It feels like yeah. they're out to sea. It feels like the ship is a real ship. Um, it really does. They managed to make, and you know, they built the thing for the movie, but it looks old. Like yeah. it already looks like it has been at sea for a long time. Sure. And it, I look at this and it makes me just, it reminds me of the old days of movies like Star Wars, where you've got a team of creatives who are like, we have problems to solve. Let's go to the junkyard and find some pieces that we can kind of mold into spaceship shapes. Sure. And like, what can we, let's sit down and draw out what we want to do and then figure out a way to make it happen and yeah. not sit at a computer and do it, but like, let's make it, let's build a thing. Yeah. And, um, you get that feeling with this. There's Absolutely. so much attention to detail in this. You know that there's so many details that probably got cut from the movie because they didn't have time to have them. It's so much so that like everything in the movie is just very impressive. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so our, our verdict on this one is is going to be, I think, probably pretty apparent at this point, which yeah. is the yeah. movie is better. <laughs> it is better. It is very much better. Um, now, we should be fair here that there are a lot of people who love, love yeah. these books. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know this, I think that they are thought of generally more highly than the Hornblower stories. 
um, which I don't agree with, but they are, um, they're a more mature take. Hornblower comes across as a little, no, I wouldn't say juvenile because the content is not like kid friendly, but, um, they're simpler adventures. Yeah. Um, they're, they're just slightly a little bit less grounded. Um, there's a lot of naval detail in those though, if you, if you like it, but it's, uh, you're not going to be lost if you don't know a lot of it. Um, I just like Horatio Hornblower as a character so much. Sure. Um, I think I could read a book about him sitting around and like <laughs> reading the paper at home. Um, in fact, one of the short stories about him is kind of that. Um, but uh, it's the one where Hornblower meets Napoleon. <laughs> he actually meets Napoleon the Third. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a funny short story. It's in one of the uh, it's in I think it's in the book that he didn't finish. Um, and it's just like thrown in there. He's like an old man. He's retired, and a guy shows up at his door and is like, "I'm Napoleon. I need your help to get home. My my carriage overturned in the storm." And uh, Hornblower's like, "Barbara, it's Napoleon at the door," and she's like, "Oh, well, give him a ride to the train station or whatever, you know." So um, so he takes, and then it turns out that it actually was Napoleon III, and the whole time he's making it look like. It's a crazy person who thinks he's Napoleon. So <laughs> it was just a funny, funny little twenty-page story or so. But uh, yeah, so if you if you like the if you like the genre, I would recommend reading at least one of them because uh, you may pick them up and think they're great because a lot of people have movies that can't miss though. Yeah, yeah, you got to see that. Um, movies can't miss. It's the best Navy movie I've ever seen. I can't even think of a uh, a more grounded um well acted um well paced um you know the music we haven't even talked about the music but the oh, music's man, great yeah. in it the, the score for the score for this movie yeah. is incredible which I, maybe it's more of a soundtrack a lot of the tracks are um classical not, pieces they're not original they're if you get the soundtrack which i have it um about half of its original work done by a guy named Iva Davies, I think, if I remember right. And, but then a bunch of it's like Mozart yeah. and Bach. Because they like classical music. Yes, and uh, you're, so Jack and, and Stephen play stringed instruments. Stephen's cellist and uh, uh, Jack is a violinist. And so they that's one of the things that they do to kind of pass the time at sea is they play music together. Yeah. So um, yeah, they I, use that as a, the, you know, it's sort of the backing for the movie, and it's really great. Yeah, it's it very beautiful. It's gorgeous. Um, it fits perfectly with the with the setting. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, it's just just an incredible film. Well paced, well acted, um, well designed. The effects are great. The practical effects. It are really holds pr- up. Yeah, yeah particularly. There's, no, there's nothing in it yeah, that's it, dated. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And so, uh, and the themes of like camaraderie, brotherhood, duty, pride, toughness, manhood, yeah. toughness. Like, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> fathers let your sons watch Master and Commander. Yeah, you know? what is this rated? Uh, probably PG thirteen. Be my guess. Uh, yeah, this is PG thirteen. I would let um, I would let a kid younger than that watch it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's there's not a lot of profanity. There's no females in the movie. There's no nudity. actually. There's there is a female. There's a scene, a very short scene where they're oh, yeah, yeah. Um, like up against an island, and there's an islander who's in a boat, but yeah. she's fully. She's clothed. like looking at him. Yeah. Um. That's about it. And that's it. That's as that's as much. Uh, and there's a picture get. of Jack's wife. Yeah. Um, that you see kind of in, off to the side of the shot. <laughs> um. It's a great film. It's a really great film. 
Uh, I was just telling Terry before the podcast started, might be in my top five, maybe even in my top three. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. It's a good it. one. Um, so give the books a, sh- a chance. Yeah, yeah. For sure, watch the movie. I've, 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 you know, crapped on him a little bit here in this podcast, but they're they're good. He's he's a genius. He, he's Patrick he's O'Brien's a good author. A genius. You're not going to be, um, uh, you know, we're not talking about a, a yeah. blockhead here. Yeah, it's right. It's just I, I think that his style didn't appeal right. to us, and I, and that's fine. And that's he doesn't fine. have to. Sure, he isn't uh, obligated to to appeal to everyone. He has he has written his stories the way he wants, and he has had a lot of success with them. So, um, you know, master give, and give him a shot. That's master. That's master and commander. The far side of the world, and. Uh, I think you could probably pick up anywhere in the book series if you wanted to. Yeah. But, uh, I did, I will say I didn't feel like, Oh no, what am I going to do? I haven't read the first, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, you, that's probably true for all of them. So, yeah. All right. You want to tell them where we're going next? Cause I don't even know. Where okay. We're going I got next. A, I got an idea here. <laughs> now, the reason why I didn't go into what I've been watching lately is because I've been watching the Lord of the Rings. Okay. And I think it's time. Is it time? Because I just finished. Well, I'm not finished with Return of the King, but I'm almost finished with Return of the King. <laughs> so I have recently read and watched. And you just got done teaching. I did just get done so, teaching. So and yeah. you just got done reading how Bombadil stuff. I did. And this is almost certain going to be a multi-part episode. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I don't There's know if no... it's going to be three or two or what <laughs> we're going to do. I don't really want to limit it to just like the Fellowship. Sure. 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 And then the Two Towers. Sure. So it might just say the Lord of the Rings is the next two. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe more. Lord of the Rings Part One. Lord of the Rings Part Two. Whatever. However um, many it takes. But I think I'm it's ready. Time. Yeah. I've got notes upon notes. Yeah. Well, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get to it. We could probably just turn around and do it right now. We're not going to because it's late, but um, we've got a lot to say on that. We do. So, I'm looking forward to it. It's probably going to be the the prep is probably going to be mostly like trimming out. Oh what yeah, we don't want to say right because it's just going to be too much. But or maybe we can have like a we can have like official the two official releases and then like nine hours of raw <laughs> <laughs> uncut uh, just. Uh, it'll be like the bonus like content the Peter Jackson special extended edition of our the append- podcast the appendices yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm excited I think that's gonna be great so if you if you haven't read them uh, you need to yes get your, get your hands on a copy of it and uh, at least at least get some of it read yeah do your in, homework in on the this next one little bit and uh, see the movies as well after you've read the books and yeah. uh, try to keep them fresh on your mind um, if you want to get a copy of the book, head to your local independent bookstore. Uh, if you have a Walls of Books near you, they will probably have it in stock, and if not, they can get you one. Um, my recommendation is the um, the newish uh, one that's illustrated by the author. It's a little bit pricey. It's it going to be in the area of seventy bucks or so, and uh, I got a copy of it for myself, and it's my favorite edition of it. Yeah, and I have multiple editions of it i'm not as big a super fan as some people in this room but uh it's hard for me when somebody brings a copy in that i don't have to just snatch it sure um which i have i haven't done i haven't taken them all but somebody did trade in the like 90 dollar one oh, like man. the really fancy one but it didn't have the cardboard slip cover uh and so i'm like uh, i'm just gonna keep this nice <laughs> uh but I got the illustrated one anyway. Um, the illustrated one's nice. Yeah, it's got sprayed yeah. edges. It's got the Sindarin on the side. Yeah. Probably, I think it says one ring to rule them all. It does. Yeah, that's um, good. But uh, if you don't want that one, you can get uh, the regular old Mariner paperbacks, which are also cool looking. Yep. The one you don't want is the 
Amazon Prime series tie-in covers. Yeah, do not get those. <laughs> those will not age well. No. Although, who knows? No. You know, once, don't once don't the, do that. Once the show comes don't out. Don't do that. No, where, no. Are you, where are you going? Let, let, me, let me finish. <laughs> once the show comes out and everyone forgets about it five minutes later. That's... <laughs> Those might become rare just, collector's they'll editions. Just, they'll just because <laughs> they're going to discontinue immediately. Who's this weird armed gauntlet character? Why is, I don't know. Why is there a black dwarf hand on the front of the two towers? Uh, uh, that's a that's extra bonus content. Why? Why? Why, <laughs> why is Gladriel wearing Gondorian armor? I'm gonna. I'll tell you why. It's because dangerous. the people who wrote that show didn't pay any attention to detail. Listen, if we keep talking this way, we're gonna get canceled. <laughs> I'm dangerously close to saying things I shouldn't on air. Uh, yes, go to your local bookstore, get a copy of Lord of the Rings, read it. Um, if you're looking for some really awesome Lord of the Rings themed games, you I can, was about to ask about that. I've got a couple. I've got a couple. Hey, did you know that there's a Lord of the Rings themed exit game? Oh, is there really? I'm ordering some. Oh, fantastic. Yes. I have a couple of Star Wars ones. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of Star Wars ones. I don't have any Lord of the Rings ones. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but the Table Board Game Lounge in Cookville is a good, great place to check out games. I've got a couple of Lord of the Rings themed games. I've got a Lord of the Rings themed Risk. That's pretty fun. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's like a Battle for Middle Earth situation. Uh, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's where you can do that. Let's see. Do we forget it? I'm going through our checklist of stuff here. Uh Pop Culture Quorum Deo. It. Oh, yes. Check out our sister uh, podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Deo. Yes. Uh, where mostly they just all, they only handle movies, pretty much. Movies um, and TV shows. Unless we one of us is on there and we bother them about the book version. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in pop culture, uh, particularly video entertainment, um, that's a good place to go and check it out. Um, so, uh, is that it? Is that the whole it. thing? Okay. I think we did it. This I think is, this is our longest one yet. Yeah, it probably is. I think we've set a record. I made no effort to, to speed us up. On, on <laughs> no, the Master Commander's worth I was worth like, it. I want to talk about all the things I want to talk about. <laughs> um, so, sorry. If you hung into the end, then great. If you did this all in one sitting, then you probably need a job. Yeah. <laughs> you need to find yourself a girl, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could have read Lord of the Rings in this Yeah, time. you could. <laughs> um, Seriously, read Lord of the Rings before the next podcast. Yes. Please do. Um, and... Uh, I guess that's it then. So signing off, this is Script V Manuscript. We are the podcast that drones on endlessly about movies and books (laughs) and the stuff we like to talk about in stories. I am co-host Terry here with... Co-host Joe. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.